Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Or they're outside. I was in some grocery store. I was reading a label on some kind of a product. And I couldn't read the fine print. And I was astonished. I was amazed. What's going on? I have perfect vision, for God's sake. I can't. How can I have a problem reading this label? Well, I talked to a girlfriend about it, and she said, uh, I decided I'm going to have to go see an optometrist and get myself some, get fitted for glasses and the rest of that. She said, nah, just go down to the, the drugstore and buy some of those reading glasses they have down there, and you'll be fine. And she was right. I got reading glasses, and you can buy them at the drugstore. Dollar a piece at the Dollar Tree. Yeah, and $22 a piece down at Tom Thumb, close to where I'm living right now, which is just a couple of plastic lenses and a couple of pieces, real rip-off. But I picked up, picked up a, well, I'll get to that in a moment. I started using these glasses, and I don't remember what diopter they started out with. I, I don't know if the, what the lowest level is, but I started at the lowest level. And over time, you know, last close to 30 years now, I've been going up another, you know, go from maybe 1.25 to 1.5. 1.75 to 2 to 2 and a quarter, 2 and a half, 275 and 3. And over the period of the last 30 years, I worked my way up from whatever the lowest diopter was up until the diopter of 3. And these lenses, these lenses are getting fairly thick now. And uh, I got to 3, and then it didn't quite work for me. And I, I tried the 2.75 that I had. You know, it was still there. I'd been using that for a long time. And I tried that and said, well, just check it to see what happens. And sure enough, I could see with the 275 more clearly than I could with the 3. Over a period of time, it over a period of time, the 2.75 got started to get a little bit fuzzy. And I backed off and I said, all right, let's try 2.5. And I still have them around here. And I try the 2.5 and I'll be darned. I'm seeing better with 2.5 than I am with 275 or 3. And it has dropped down where most recently, just in the last couple of days, I went off and bought a set of glasses. I was down to two and a quarter, and they were a little fuzzy. And I thought, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm going to go ahead and try. I'm going to get to the grocery store. I'm going to buy a pair of, of uh, number two diopters. I didn't have any more that I could find anywhere in the piles around here. <clears throat> Got number two, and I could see more clearly with a number two diopter than I could with a 2.25. And this, to me, is just amazing, astonishing. I do not understand what's going on here, but my vision over time, when did I get, it's been over about probably about a year, 18 months that it started dropping back from a 3.0 on the diopter to 2.75, 2.50, two and a quarter, and now I'm down to two. This doesn't sound like a complaint. It's not a complaint. <laughs> okay. It's not a complaint. It's a blessing is what it comes yeah. down to. And I cannot explain it. I don't know what I've done. You know, if I'd say that all of a sudden I was taking a new vitamin or something like that, holy cow. But I don't have an explanation well, for why it could be your diet. I mean, you know. 
I can't think of anything else. I mean, well, you know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I assume it has to be something to do. I've done something correctly, but I, you know, or the good Lord is just saying, okay, okay, you've gone far enough with those <laughs> those glasses. We're going to back you up a little while. And I don't know how long it's going to last. Because I've gone through episodes in the past where my glass, where my vision really does get kind of fuzzy. And then later on it'll clear up, and then it gets fuzzy again, the rest of that sort of thing. Well, I can't think uh, of anything other than, it, you know, that it's a uh, some sort of uh, diet. You yeah, know, it must be. In, the, in what you're eating that's affecting it, because it really does matter, you know, what you eat. But I don't know. You know, a lot of times it's hard to it's hard to keep track and go, well, oh, okay, I know what it is. But, you know, yeah, and it's something I've been doing for at least a year, maybe 18 months now since it's backed off from three back on down to two. And uh, I'd like to know. I'd like to understand what I've been doing right, so well, a lot of other I might as well stop doing it. I might as well stop doing it. Oh, well, damn. Well, a lot of other people would like to know what you're doing, too, so they could try it. Yeah. I wish, you know, I wish I had an explanation for it. But strange, and it's not subjective. It's not just something in my imagination because I'm using, I mean, I'm using right now. I've got the, these glasses on with a diopter of 2 on there, um, 2.0, and... Uh, I'm actually wondering, next time I go to the grocery store, I'm going to pick up 1.75. I'm going to get even lower than the two. I'm going to see if this works even better. I don't know, but it's pretty amazing. So I don't know what brought that up exactly, but I'm I'm kind of excited about it, you know? Yeah, I would be. I've been praying to the good Lord to, you know, preserve my vision. I didn't ask him to improve it, but, you know, I didn't want to go three and a quarter, three and a half. I didn't want to get to where I was wearing Coke bottle lenses. And uh, I don't know. I'm getting more than I prayed for, I'll tell you that. Well, that, that might be just it. You know? It might be prayer. Well, I, I, I have no other explanation. I have no other explanation. I, mean, I know I, a lot of people out there would say, oh, come on. Yeah, no. I believe in prayer, you know, so... You know, that's as good an explanation for me as anything. Well, it may be exactly what it is. Um, one way or another, it's it's good Lord's business, I think. But let's see what else we have to talk about here uh, besides my vision is improving. And, uh, you know, stud- steadily, miraculously from my perspective. I've got an article here from the New York Times. And the headline is, To Collect Debts. Nursing homes are seizing control over patients. Oh man, you know what? I I addressed this last night, and really, this is a horrible story. This Do you already know about the same story from the New York Times? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Oh, go ahead. And plus, Run with it. Well, the the thing is, this is not just. I mean, they are focusing in the New York Times about what's going on in New York City. Yep. And and that is, you know, they've got all the facts and the you know and the examples and all that, and it's terrible, but. This situation is not just in New York. This is going on everywhere. As a matter of fact, years ago, I mean, this is, and it's not just limited to what this story goes through, which is, uh, well, you'll, you'll, you'll probably exactly the detail, but the thing is, like, uh, I say maybe 10 years ago in Portland, Oregon, yep. they had a huge scandal because judges and lawyers and, you know, Healthcare professionals, whatever, whoever you know, is that is, and these things called guardian ad litems were basically conspiring to 
steal people's whole estate. Yep. You yep. know, and yeah. uh, this is very this is this is like a subset of that whole scam. Do you know where the worst? Do you know what the most corrupt courts in the world are, or probate. at least in this country? Probate. Yeah, that would be it. Yeah, probate. That's it. I know of a situation. I wrote about it back in the 1990s. Some guy owned, at one point, the biggest, he had the biggest collection of oil wells and oil fields in the state of Texas, and I don't recall his name. This idea, this story I'm telling you is 20 years old at least, thereabouts, 20, 25, I don't know, something like that. any case, he died, and he left everything he had to his nephew. Now, his nephew didn't know, he had no clue as to what was going on in business. And he did like to hang out in topless bars and uh, enjoyed his alcohol and his drugs. And what eventually happened is they took control over this guy. They said he was incompetent. They put him in his mansion, the old, his, his uncle's mansion. I believe that's who he left to get left the money to him. And they gave him a couple of nurses <laughs> who were more than nurses, if you catch my drift. And they kept this guy drunk and stoned and well fed okay he was living and he was living like a bird in cage all right but he was living large within that cage he didn't mind he didn't mind everything he wanted was taken care of as long as he stayed in that house and then the lawyers moved in and one group of lawyers represented him in the probate case and a second group of lawyers petitioned the court and said no we can do a better job of representing this guy who now had billions of dollars. The estate was worth billions. We can do a better job of representing him than the first set of lawyers. And the first set of lawyers says, oh, no, you can't. The second said, oh, yes, we can. And every time one of them says, no, you can't, yes, I can, they build the estate. Then a third bunch of lawyers moves in. And before you're done, we had something like 25 or 30 law firms that were each arguing in court that they could do a better job of representing this guy than the other 25 law firms. In. And what they did is just essentially gang-banged the estate and drained it of its money. And all they did is just bounce letters back and forth and charge the estate every time they sent a boilerplate letter. Yep. The only human involvement may have been licking the stamp to put on the envelope. Well, I don't know how it worked out other than they kept this guy drugged and they just kept working the estate. And uh, I don't know that they got everything out of it, but... Well, and this is what they do, and this story in New York is just, uh, you know, now they're using this system for bill collection. Yeah. You know, they've gone one step further. It used to just be plain up, you know, straight-up robbery. Now they're actually, you know, justifying it as... Kidnapping. It's not just robbery. Robbery is they just break in the house, they steal the cash, they leave. All right? This is kidnapping. And robbery, yeah. Yeah. They haul, the, they haul it is, they haul the old lady off someplace, and she can't speak, think, or whatever, hardly. And they claim, essentially, guardianship over her. And then, and based on that, they claim to be able to, to handle her funds, exclusive ability to handle her funds, and one thing which just leads to another. They in the New York Times story. This woman, there's a woman named Lillian Palmero. She had a PhD in psychology and loved ballroom dancing, but she fell in. She became incapacitated in her 80s, 
Alzheimer's, dementia, something along those lines. Her husband, he came every day. He sat there and he plays a guitar. He sings to her. He tries to sing with her. He tries to take care of her every day. He comes in one day and he's shocked to find a six-page legal document waiting on her bed. She's not there. The legal document is there. It was guardianship petition filed by the nursing home uh, asking the court to give a stranger full legal power over Mrs. Palmero, now 90, and complete control of her money. Right? Now it goes on and says few people are aware that nursing home, that a nursing home can take such a step. Guardianship cases are difficult to gain access uh, to and poorly tracked by New York State courts. You bet they are. Yeah. It's just like you're not going to find Bonnie and Clyde keeping a diary of the last bank they robbed. Yeah. You're not going to, they're not going to, this is not, and this, this is not an aberration. This isn't a situation where some monster per se in the nursing home said, ha ha, I'll take control of this one. No, this goes on. Yeah, and this, this standard procedure. This particular case here is, is egregious, I mean, on so many levels. But the thing is, it was also filed in the name of a nun. Really? Yep, if you read on there, because this, I didn't is, get to that. this is a Catholic uh, uh, nursing home. Ooh. And, and, the, uh, and the, uh, the legal papers were filed on behalf of a nun there. And they wanted the nun to get complete control of the money. Is that true? The the nun is the director of the nursing home. Okay. So the nun, you know, a person, somebody has to file, right? So it's her. So this nun is saying, no, uh, because, and and the reason this all came about was not because her husband wasn't taking care of her or or wasn't paying the bill. What they did was they They doubled the the bill. bill on him. Yeah, they doubled the bill, and when he protested, then they jumped in and they yeah. said, "We'll just capture, we'll just essentially kidnap the old lady." Yeah, and steal all her money, and that, yep. that'll be that. You know, mm-hmm. and that's what they. And this this is this this is a nun doing this, okay? You know, so I mean, you Catholics out there, I'm sorry, but hey. Well, at least it wasn't a, It was at least a, you know the nuns are perhaps in line to rob the elderly. But it's the priests that are in line to fornicate with the uh, the altar boards. Right. I mean, this is a problem. two ends of the spectrum on this. Yeah, we have priests, uh, you know, molesting altar boys and nuns robbing old ladies. This is not a good thing. Oh, this is not a good thing. This is not a credit to the Catholic Church. And I'm not arguing that the nun, we have one nun. I'm not arguing, making an argument. It's, But it's, how do we have this one nun? I mean, we can sit here and say, well, it's only one nun. Well, it's only one we know about. And what about the rest of the nuns and priests and whatever who should know what this nun is doing and should shut her down? Right. And and the thing is, this isn't the first suit this nursing home has put against other people. This yeah. is the one that the New York Times is focusing on. But they, they also in this thing say, hey, they've got these other cases with the same nursing home, which would mean it's the same nun because she's still the director. You know, and this is a Catholic, you know, the Catholic Church should be aware of this somewhere. That, hey, wait a minute. Is this a really a policy that we want to promote? I understand. Well, it's like the priests and whatever. If they can keep a lid on it and they can make money, they'll make the money. But I'd like to know who is getting the money. Who is getting the money? Um, I'd like to know, is that uh, is that 
is that nun taking a vow of poverty, or is she living large someplace outside the nunnery? Oh, I bet she's living large in New York City as director of the nursing home. And, uh, you know, the thing is, though, who they, how this goes is they get a uh, guardian ad litem who is, these are professional guardians, okay? These are yep. complete strangers who this is what they do as a job is say, okay, I'm a guardian. And yep. then they just rob everybody's money and just, yep. they don't, they don't, they don't question anything. If the uh, nursing home jacks up the bill four times what it used to be, they just pay it. Until I understand. Drained, and then they get the until kickback. They, until the account is drained, the insurance is drained, whatever. And at that time, it's about time for the victim to die. We aren't going to have any more medical care for you anymore because you're broke. Ha! Why are you broke? Because we robbed you. Um, yeah. Let's take a break for some commercials and... I'll be back with Frank Stefan in just a moment on the American Independence Zone. Frank Stefan, and we have been talking about 
the idea that people who are in nursing homes can essentially be seized by the nursing home, kidnapped effectively for the purpose of extorting money and gaining control over whatever money that that person still has in the nursing home. And uh, this isn't just wrong, it's abominable, it's sort of thing, and it's not unusual. No, that's the thing. This is done. This isn't just some crazy guy who pulled a fast stunt on the courts out there. This is this is not this is standard operating procedure in some places, and it's horrific. And where I want to go with it is this: when we claim guardianship and seizing these seizing control of people without anyone asking you to do so, is this? Does this have anything to do with the status that they ver in which they view the uh, the person that they've seized? Is this only a matter of look, the old lady's incompetent? You know, she's in dementia. Is it only that? Do they presume that she is an animal and just property? I'd really like to understand the legal foundation for what's happened here. You know, understanding, seeing what has happened, uh, that's interesting and to some degree horrific. But I'd like to be able to understand the law that allows them to do it. I'd like to be able to trace it down to bottom and see what kind of presumptions they are relying on, what sort of definitions, because I have a hunch that you might learn a great deal if you could do that. Probably. Now, they, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that the law that they're relying on in New York specifically, it was either, I think, 93 or 83 that they passed it in, in New York. Yeah. So it's not an old law. Well, it's not an ancient law, but still. No, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a little old, but it's, I mean, I don't consider anything from the 90s old. Uh, 80s, <laughs> no, yeah, I know. <laughs> Yeah, well, none of us senior citizens consider that all that old either, but the young people, oh, my God, 90s. Wow, what was that? Yeah. Exactly. Were there Kate, people man. back then? Yeah. yeah, they had dinosaurs and whatever. Uh, so, all right, well, do we have anything else we'd like to add to this right now, or shall we move on? No, but I can't imagine where it wouldn't be uh, the, the whole man or other animal thing wouldn't, wouldn't work in. It probably would because in the end we're we've got some sort of a medical treatment going on here. Yeah. They're storing her, she has a medical problem, it's called dementia. I'll bet they're giving her drugs. There are medical devices involved here one way or another. I'll bet that man or other animals does kick in. They have captured one of the animals and they won't release it unless somebody gives them some money. My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, unless, of course, there's some lawyers and judges around, in which case you can forget all that. Yeah, it's, you know, that animal's got some money they want, you know. Yeah, I know. we got to, before we exterminate this animal, mm-hmm. we want to drain, uh, you know, the bank account. Exactly. Same thing with insurance. Right. You get that insurance. I mean, everyone has seen those reports. The average person spends 90% of all the money they'll ever spend on medical care is spent in the last six months or so of their lives. The studies out there, I don't have one in front of me, but I've seen them in the past, and they agree that 90% of everything we spend is spent on average in the last six months before we die, which means what? It means you spend 10% on medical insurance during most of your life, and then 
when you finally get in a position where you are, you've had it, <laughs> you're you're about to die. <laughs> they will do everything they can to make you to stretch it out for another six months. And during that time, all the tests and procedures and whatever that keep you alive will exhaust your insurance fund. And once that's exhausted, then they'll say, well, there's nothing left for us to do. And they'll let it go, pull the plug, and bye-bye. Well, they, now, well wait a minute now. That's not, uh, that, that would be cruel. Have there's, I gone too far? There's morphine involved. Okay. Oh, yeah. So you get free drugs. Yeah, they don't just pull the plug. When you're out of money, they give you some free morphine for your trip. Well, then it's oh, then I guess then I guess it's all worthwhile. Yeah, I've been I've been looking for that hit for a long time, and now I get a legal hit of morphine. Finally, they come with the morphine. Yeah. I understand. No, that's it. And uh, you know, I'm telling you, you know, uh, what is that? Uh, hospice. Yep. Hospice is another. Uh, you know, a racket because, uh, you know, they say, well, you can't go into hospice unless, uh, you know, you've got like six months or less to live. I have never seen anybody make it past a week and a half in hospice. Once they get into hospice, that's it, man. That's it. Because, see, they tell you once you're in there, oh, if you were getting any medical treatment, yeah. you're not anymore because that's not allowed in hospice. You're not getting any medical treatment in hospice. How about dance instruction? Do you get dance instruction? Is that a lot? You know, if you can imagine yourself dancing with all the morphine they give you, because all that's allowed is comfort care. That's that's code for morphine and more morphine. Mm -hmm. Until, you know, you're so morphined up that you, you know, you forget how to breathe. Yeah. This is consistent, I suspect, with Obamacare. It is. This is this is what they, they you know. This is the whole death panel thing. Yeah. Yeah. We're gonna. We're not gonna give you any treatment. We're just gonna keep you stoned until you finally expire. Yeah. Yeah. You won't suffer. Isn't that great? I mean. Yeah, that's wonderful. You know, the last. I don't know if you've seen it at the checkout stand, but I had no idea of this whole thing until I was standing in line at the grocery store, and I'm standing there. I look at the magazines, and it's like, well, what's this? gee, this looks like a fairly young couple, and what? You know, he's, oh, it's all about how he's heartbroken about losing his wife. So I stand there, and, of course, I, uh, you know, open up the magazine and see, what what is this? Well, there, People magazine is making this woman out to be a hero, like some sort of icon, because she was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And the doctors, of course, said, well, there's nothing we can do for you. So instead of saying, well, okay, then I'm going to try something, you know, that you maybe don't know about, you know, some alternative thing, she decided to say, well, that's it. I'm moving to Oregon so I can find me a doctor to kill me. And and this is the new hero. As a matter of fact, it has sparked such a, uh, just an outpouring of oh, oh, what a wonderful, what a wonderful thing that now the state of California is pushing the the legislature is pushing to make a law just like Oregon to say that it's okay for doctors to help you kill yourself. It's it's I'm telling you we have a culture of death going on. No, I understand in this country. I understand that we kind of I am at least I'm cracking jokes on the rest of that, but this is something. This is something horrific, and it is not simply about the people that are dying. In this case, 
the story Frank's relating some woman who's got a serious problem, and therefore she's moving to Oregon where the doctors can exterminate her. She wants to die. And they did. Well, I understand. They're treating her as some sort of a hero. You know, I'm not you got to walk a mile in anybody's shoes and the rest of that. I'm not arguing that what the woman did exactly was inexcusable, but I will argue that it's wrong for this reason. It's wrong for the same reason that God, or at least the church historically, has, has declared that if you commit suicide, you can't be buried in hallowed ground. That's the Catholic Church. I'm not saying that's right, I'm not saying it's wrong, but I understand it. And the reason is because if you are made in God's image, a couple of things are true, as per Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And if you read Genesis 9, 6, Genesis 9, 6 explains why you can't kill a man. They expressly say because he's made in God's image. That's why murder is a crime. You can kill cows and sheep and pigs and goats and you know birds and, and fish and all the rest of this sort of thing. That's no problem. They're not made in God's image. They are animals. But you can't kill a man or a woman without just cause because they are made in God's image. Now what that means is not merely that I am prohibited from killing people because they're made in God's image. It also lays the foundation for not just a right of self-defense, but a duty of self-defense. You come around to kill me, and I will blow your head off given the opportunity. You understand? I will protect this image of God that I use as my body. Right? It is my duty to do so, not just a right of self-defense. I have a duty of self-defense that I can trace back to Genesis 1, 26 through 28, says God made man in his image. And 9, 6 says we gotta, you can't shoot him because he's, he's, he's made in God's image. <clears throat> so when someone goes ahead and commits suicide, they are performing probably the single greatest expression of contempt for God that can be imagined. In the final analysis, if I get crazy or motivated or whatever and I start shooting people, that's a bad thing. But I can still be buried in hallowed ground. But if I kill myself, I have shot and killed my own image of God. And the church says, no, too much, too far. Okay, that's the ultimate offense against God, at least in their opinion. I can understand that theory. And that's why, you know, we've got a woman who's going to Oregon to get killed, get whacked by some doctor. Yeah, because well, she doesn't want to suffer. And, and the I thing get, is, you know, I understand that. Well, but yeah, I'm but, still you saying, know, the Bible also says that, you know, we all have our cross to bear. I agree. And, and, you know, suffering is part of that. And, you know, if God wants you to suffer, then you should suffer. It'll be over soon enough. You know, I mean, and and suffering, you know, uh, I don't know, from what I've seen, suffering and and hardship and all that tends to bring people closer to God. Uh, You know, maybe it's not always true, but it seems to be mostly true, you know. I I mean, no atheists in foxholes, on and on it goes, you know. And I mean, think if, you know, and if God doesn't want you to suffer, you'll die in your sleep. But, But, you know, we talk about suffering, but even there. From my perspective, there's only one bad thing, and that is being separated from God. All right, right, you go through certain problems, you have trials and tribulations in this life, but if the Bible is correct, if it's true that there is an eternal afterlife, this life is a triviality. 
this life doesn't amount is no more significant than a mosquito bite on the life of someone who's going to live forever. Huh? It's like the little dream you had back when you were a baby or a young boy. You went running down the hall to your your folks' bedroom. It's, oh, mommy, mommy, the boogeyman's going to get me. Oh, did you have a bad dream? Yes, I had a bad dream. All right, fine. There's The boogeyman isn't the real deal. The dream isn't the real deal. We've all had that dream, but none of us remember it anymore. There will be a time in the next life, in my opinion, where you won't even be able to remember this life. It'll be like the dream about the boogeyman uh, that you had when you were a kid. You don't remember it now. You won't remember this whole life. Triviality in the context of eternity. If you believe in eternity, this ain't the big, this is not a big deal, folks. It's hard not to take it serious. It's hard not to... You know, be tempted to do things that you might, if you were a little more rational, wish you hadn't done. But this is just the, you know, this is that dream about the boogeyman. It might not be happy, but big deal. You well, wake yeah. up. And while it's going on, you should, you know, deal with it the best you can. But, you know, it's not going to last forever. I agree. You know, and that's the whole point. But then again, if you don't have any belief, then you've got nothing but give me the morphine. I don't want to suffer. I wouldn't necessarily say that taking the morphine in and of itself is necessarily, I'm not going to argue that that's bad or sinful. I don't know that we were, we were made to, 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 to suffer in this life. I, I know, I know it's there and I know it's, it's sometimes, you know, it's the trouble where you learn something. Um, you, you learn things in the midst of trouble. Right. When everything's going good and the rest of that sort of thing, you are not paying attention to anything. You're just all full of yourself. And, you know, it's when you get that trouble that's, oh, my gosh. Well, I, I mean, it, you know, there's a lot of saying, you know, you learn from your mistakes. That's what, you know, failure that's is the, the greatest that's teacher. The, of, well, we hope we learn from our mistakes. Yeah, failure right? is the greatest teacher. And, you know, uh, there's no uh, atheists in foxholes. And, I mean, the whole theme goes on throughout the whole our whole existence that turmoil and things when things aren't going right is when you excel. Yeah. Not when things are going good. No. You get in trouble when things are going good actually. No, no. For the right. most part, you know? You know, you get more money than you can handle, you get more wild women than you can handle. A whole bunch of strange things happen. You think you can handle it, no you can't. Yeah, like ask any I mean, lottery winner. Yeah, no. You know, how, I, how's life going for them? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not it's it's not unusual to find out that they are, you know, ruined. Right. Oh, what <laughs> what's your problem, young man? Well, I won the lottery. My whole life was, was destroyed. Uh, you know, you think it's a good thing, but maybe not. Uh, some people might may be able to handle it. I think we all want it. Sure. Frank, if I had an opportunity to provide you with a winning lottery ticket, would you turn? No, nah, that's too much trouble. I'm not going to take a chance. I think, or would you I'd take? Give a, it, I'd give it a shot. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> you know, but because maybe we could learn something in the turmoil that would follow receiving the lottery. My life, I might. I might be significantly improved if I'd done that. Why don't we take another break for some more commercials? And, folks, before we get done with this program, we're going to talk about emergency powers. The way it's going, it probably won't be until the second hour of the program, but we're going to get into emergency powers, and it might be of interest, you know, for those of you who've got a background, you want to follow the law a little bit, this might be an interesting discussion. 
Frank and I will be back in a moment. Please stay tuned. Things in this world are more important than clean, pure water. Understanding this, ABR makes four tabletop water distillers available to you for purchase. First, we have the five and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $139. The second is a five and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $189. The third is a three and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $189. And our premier tabletop distiller is a three and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $250. All our distillers have a stainless steel boiling pot, dome, and cooling tubes. And the premier version also has a splash flap to protect against contamination of the cooling tubes. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com for more information and protect your water supply. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. and this is the American Independence Hour. Co-host Frank Stefan is here. We've been kicking around some problems to deal with medical care. Let's go on. I've got an article from uh, ultimately Gerald Salente is the source of the information. Most of you recognize the name. Gerald Salente is an economic forecaster who's had significant success over the past. He's uh, achieved a certain amount of celebrity and some people describe him as a financial genius. I wouldn't say that myself, uh, but just the same. He's been very successful. He knows what's going on. He has connections. He has people to talk to. And most of you are aware of who he is. And here's one of his comments. My insider sources inform me the same thing is happening in various federal organizations by those who have recently retired from the CIA, Department of Homeland Security, National Security Agency, and FEMA. This fact is indisputable. I have first-hand knowledge of four ex-Fed officials and their families who have relocated to safety enclaves. When doing so was very disruptive to their respective families' lives. Increasingly, it's looking like some major event or events 
is, are coming, and persons with insider information are attempting to remove themselves from harm's way. When government officials from the nation's various alphabet soup agencies retire en masse, it is not necessarily a noteworthy event. However, when the same officials retire en masse and then relocate to form their own survivalist enclaves, this is something we should all sit up and take notice of, especially when we are seeing the same behavior on the part of Wall Street executives. What do you think, Frank? Are you noticing uh, government people retiring to your neck of the Oregon woods? No, I haven't, uh, but I'll keep my eyes peeled for them because mm-hmm. if they do, they should find somewhere else to live. There goes the neighborhood. But, uh, you know, I, I was reading uh, something similar uh, from a different uh, not about federal employees, but this is coming out of uh, Davos, that the the elite, as they like to be called, um, are also finding hidey holes for themselves, and they they seem to prefer New Zealand. Okay. And, uh, you know, they're also bugging out and, and getting another place. So they also feel, and they're, you know, that story goes along the lines that they feel that, well, you know, when this whole thing collapses, as, as most people that pay attention see that it, 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 it pretty much has to, uh, that they don't want to be around because they're afraid that somebody might realize it was their fault. Yeah, I know. And That's the problem, and it's one of the questions. They're looking for enclaves where they're going to be safe. Well, I don't know where they would be in this country. I can imagine they might go to Oregon or Idaho, or Wyoming, or who knows. You can you can put a number, you can suspect a number of different locations. But the truth of the matter is this: if we had a real collapse, and I was living out in the wilderness someplace or in a remote area, and I knew that down the road there was a an enclave of fifty or a hundred government employees, former government officers and employees, or maybe five hundred of them. I don't know how many. I have to ask whether I would be inclined to help these people or regard them as prey. And what I mean by that, look, who paid for that new generator you got there, fellow? Yeah. Who paid for all that food you got stacked up in the back room? It's the peons who paid for it when you were receiving double the pay that you would could earn earn in the in the private sector and now you tend to live large after everything has collapsed and you're gonna hide out in your little enclave? Yeah, I don't uh, I, I don't have to ask myself how I would look at them. Uh, me, they are you know, they may not be prey because I don't I don't need to prey on them. Uh, you know, because I've I, I try to prepare on my own, but I would view them as an enemy. I understand that. You know, and if they stepped anywhere out of line at all, you know, it would be, you know, they would be viewed seriously as an enemy and a serious threat. Uh, and I know, think they know that, don't do you? Do, I, I think they no, have I to. I think that's why they're trying to hide. I think that's why. Yeah, I know, but they couldn't. That's why they might not be able to hide in this country. I know, yeah. The New Zealanders don't care where they came from, how they got that generator. They're just glad it's there, and maybe they can steal it, you know, sure. or trade it for a couple of lambs or something like that. I don't know. But as much but, as the, even the federal employees uh, make, I don't know if they've got enough to relocate to New Zealand. 
you know, we're they, talking about officers and people in positions of sure, and they might more than average power. You know, Australia, the middle of Australia. I'm sure no Aborigine out there really cares, you know, way about you, and uh, you know, you might be able to make it out there. Uh, but as far as anywhere in this country, uh, in any existing communities or near any existing communities, I, I just don't see it. I don't see it unless, you know, and that would be crazy to move somewhere that isn't going to be in worse shape, you know, than the old boy, maybe they'll like us because we've got things, or maybe they'll yeah. just take everything you've got. Uh, yeah. So, okay, let's go where all the other people are prepared. Well, you don't think they're going to know who you are? Yeah, we'll find you know, out. Somebody's going to yeah. say something. Bring your wife, bring your kids. Somebody's going to say something, and all of a sudden, you know, they're going to say, my daddy works for the for the government. Oh, really? He well, does? Well, oh, no kidding. Where is daddy Guess right what? now? Guess <laughs> what? I mean, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that the world is teetering on an edge where people are at least thinking this way. It may not work out this way. Right. But some people say, wait a second, this is rational thought. These are rational considerations. And all by itself, that tells you we're not back in the 1950s or the 1960s. We're in a more dangerous, fragile condition than we have been probably throughout your lifetime and mine. One might even say uh, dark ages. Uh, We might even say end times. Yeah. Uh, hard to say where this is going, but it's not hard to say where it could go in the extreme. You know, I try to say this every time I talk about it. The, the worst case scenario is also the least likely scenario. Well, that's true, but you know that that is usually true. But it seems that the worst case scenario is becoming more and more likely. It may not be the most likely thing right now, but it's getting more and more likely every day because. I mean, look at how the and, and nothing is slowing down. It's not changing. I mean, we have the the one percent of the rich people own fifty percent of everything on earth. That's right. You know, and it's getting worse. Yeah. And you know, and what they expect to just crash it all and let us all die, and we're all going to sit there and go, "Oh well, that's a shame. That's too bad." Well, at least your guys are okay. You know, I now, how will they survive? I mean, the super rich didn't get to be super rich by uh, digging their own ditches and washing their own clothes. Yeah. When the peons disappear to a significant degree, who's going to support the super rich? Well, and, and, and they're going to be in danger of, okay, I need something, so I need to go find somebody. Now, I'm not yeah. projecting or thinking that they're going to kill everybody. It's just going to be a lot of people, but there's always going to be somebody around, but who are those people going to be? And and you're going to say, oh, hi, I'm the super rich, and I don't want to wash my own clothes. Uh, how would you like to come and work for me for some food? Oh, okay. And they when I get your house, I slit your throat. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, it, <laughs> I mean, I don't see, I don't see the rationale behind the people that are are making this happen, and I do think this is being orchestrated because I can't imagine this all just happening by accident, you know. No, it's not. It's been orchestrated because if it weren't, somebody would have stood up and made it stop. They said, wait a second, this is crazy. We keep doing this, and we're going to be hunted. Yeah. All right? And then nobody did that. 
Instead, they said, I don't care if I'm going to be hunted. That'll be five years or 10 years or 20 years from now, but I'm going to get mine now. All right? I'm going to get all I can right now. They've done that. We've run the world that way, and we are finally coming to the end of that line. At the time, they were taking whatever they could take. The 15, 20 years seemed a long ways away. Today, it might not be so far away. People are saying, uh-oh, maybe the stuff's about ready to hit the fan. We've been, they, even the super rich, are to some degree ensnared and entrapped by a system that has led us to, you know, dangerous times, maybe maybe disaster. What do you think that system is, Frank? The what again? What do you think that system is? Do you have any opinion on what the essence of that system might be? I think it's the I think it's the money. I think it's the fiat money. Yeah, I think that's the deal. I think that's I think that's the heart of darkness for the whole damn system. And it seemed like a great idea back 40, 50 years ago and whatever. And let's have fiat currency. We can get rich. We can get fabulously wealthy. Yeah, and you can collapse the economy. You can collapse the world and hope to God nobody knows you're in on it. Once you get into it and you advance it down the road, there's no easy way of getting out without probably collapsing the economy. Once they climbed on this tiger, they got to ride it until the end. That's what I think is going on. Or that, you know, that, that 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 crosses my mind, and it seems probable to me. Yeah, I, you know, the thing is, though, I just don't. I, I, I think there has to be something spiritual, blinding them, uh, putting scales on their eyes. All the things that the Bible says seems to apply to them because. I just can't see how you can sit back and say, yeah, this is all going to work out great for us. Yeah, I know. You know, I mean, yeah, we'll just kill everybody, and uh, we'll just crash the whole thing, and uh, that's okay. I have a yacht, and I, I'm doing great. And I, I don't see how you can rationally see that working out for you. No. But, again, people are short-sighted. You know, and you people say, well, stupid. okay, then I'll just hi- I'll hire me some you know, Blackwater mercenaries or something. Yeah. How many of those are you going to hire? How many can you trust? Well, Once yeah. all breaks down and you've got a safe full of gold and a wife 20 years younger than you are, and here comes this mercenary and you're going to trust him? Right. Or your or your chauffeur or your yeah. dishwasher or your anybody. It's a terrible situation. Terrible for all of us. Yeah, um, but I'm not, mind, I don't need anybody to wash my dishes. See, I don't need anybody to dig my holes for me. You know, the thing is, they do. Yeah, I know. And they're going to have to get somebody to do something for them. And <laughs> what's to say that, okay, fine, maybe you get a dishwasher that is fine, and then you get another maid that isn't. It only takes one to end your life. Yeah. You know, and I, I just don't, I, I don't see the rationale that uh, they they can look at it and say, this is going to be okay for us. Let's do this great plan. I, they, they, there's got to be something deeper, something spiritual that's blinding them. And, and Well, you know, the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Not just some evil or occasional evil. It does say all evil. The love of money, that's what it's all about. And once you start to look at that and you think, hmm, we've got this fiat monetary system, and we have people who are who've been able to enrich themselves extraordinarily well by using this fiat monetary system. It's hard to imagine that these people do not love 
money. And the Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Right. Money's okay. All right? Money in and of itself isn't bad. But if you really love it, and you love it to the point where, you you know, what won't you do to get more? That's where we get into some big troubles, and that's, you know, well, and when to you me, that lays at the cornerstone of whatever the problems are today. When you look at the corporations, and that's, yeah. uh, that's what the so-called elite use as their weapon, is corporations. It's what they hide behind. And, you know, the thing is, these things are nothing but the love of money. I mean, their one and only goal in their existence is more profit, more gain. That's and right. If I have to burn your house down and kill your whole family to get some more profit, well, then yep. that's what I got to do. I mean, you that's know, that's exactly right. You know, and that's a corporate mindset. It's their system of values in the corporation and the system of values in an economy. These are completely different from the system of values that you would find in a nation. A nation is composed of people. They have some feeling and respect for each other. Right? I know they're not perfect and the rest of that, but when you move from a nation into an economy and, the, and, the na- and you no longer have a nation dominated by people but, a nation dom- but an economy dominated by corporations, those corporations don't give a damn about anybody on the earth even including their own employees and officers. The corporations have a completely different rationale, different system of values, and they will do things that are ultimately horrific. Yeah. And we were wrong to give them as much latitude as we've given them. The Supreme Court has declared them to be something akin to persons. Uh, they should have been handled at all times as something dangerous, like a wild animal that's been imported from a foreign jungle. Maybe you can bring one in and you can keep them around. They may be entertaining to watch, but you better not turn your back on these things. You better not get feeling that, gee, I can trust these these corporations any more than you can trust the lion and the tiger. And the minute it steps out of line, you got to end it. Because yeah, that's, you, and that's what it used to be with corporations. If they, yeah. they had one purpose and they had a time limit, and their time limit was like, okay, look, we want to build a – we want to build something for the public good, and we've got to create this thing to do that. Okay, uh-huh. so they do, and okay, they build the bridge, and there it is. It's done. Okay, corporation's over now. You're done. You're disbanded. The, there's the bridge. We got what we wanted. Thanks. See ya. Your, your does does that mean I lose my job as president of the corporation where I can make a half million dollars a year or Five million dollars yeah. a year, a hundred million a year. Yeah. It does. Oh, well, then let's 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 keep that corporation around a little longer. Yeah, well, you'll need me. I don't get him. You'll need me here to collect tolls and stuff and to maintain the bridge. Yeah, and, uh, I, you know, hey, I. Hey, hey, there's we do good things for all kinds of people. You know, we're we're here to help. Let's take a break, Frank. We're at the end of the first hour. When we come back, we're going to talk about emergency powers. I'm Alfred Adams here with Frank Stefan, and we will be back in a moment. Please stay tuned. Bye. From Glen to Glen And down the mountain side The summer gone And all the flowers die Oh, my 
Folks, I'm Alfred Adisk. This is the American Independence Hour. I'm here with Frank Stephan, my co-host. And uh, this is the second half of the program. Uh, we're going to start talking about emergency powers. I just had, I looked at it, I watched a video today where James Turk interviewed a man named Lawrence Parks on the subject of emergency powers. The video is not very long. It's only six and a half minutes, thereabouts. Um, it's not extraordinarily insightful, but still it was a useful introduction to some comments on emergency powers. And it's posted, you can find it on my blog at adask.wordpress.com. That's A-D-A-S-K.wordpress.com. 
It's uh, emergency powers is the heading. Um, it, it's the top article on the blog at this moment. You know, if you're listening, if you happen to listen to a recording of this uh, this program, you know, several days from now there will be something else at the top of the blog. But emergency powers is the headline, and you'll be able to track it down if you have an interest in doing so. <clears throat> and the reason this is important, he explains, he gives a good history of how the emergency powers evolved, the concept of emergency powers. And the important thing to understand is that the idea of emergency is the fundamental idea, the, the, the most profound idea is that in a state of emergency, the laws are suspended. Right? It's the idea, I've used the example a bunch of times, I'm if I'm driving 50 miles an hour in reverse, going the wrong way in a school zone, you can bet that the cops are going to want to ticket me and pull me off the road and maybe put me in the slammer. But if it's an emergency, if people are shooting at me and I can show bullet holes in the car and the window and the rest of that sort of thing, all of a sudden I'm not subject to those laws. People sit back and say, wait a second, this was an emergency. He was trying to save his life, therefore it was okay to drive 50 miles an hour in reverse in a school zone in the wrong way. All right? Um, it was an emergency. All those laws get suspended when you are in a state of emergency. Now, the government set this state of emergency up in 1933 with the, oh, the act that ultimately the Banking Act that removed gold from, ultimately removed gold from circulation. And it was under the pretext of emergency that they could do things that were unconstitutional. The emergency becomes an excuse, a pretext, sit back and say, well, we don't have to obey the Constitution. We don't actually have to do anything. We can just run and gun. And when I say run and gun, I mean gun, shoot people. No biggie, Bob. It's an emergency. The laws are suspended. And when they are, so are your rights. So are the government's duties to protect your rights. In a state of emergency, anything goes. The idea is survive, 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 no matter what, no matter what it takes. So the government started a state of emergency in 1933, and so far as I know, that emergency has never been ended. They have continued that emergency. They found it extremely convenient to say, wait a second. We can rule by men rather than rule by law. We don't have to listen to people's law. That's what the Constitution is. We can just say we can do anything we want. We're congressmen. We're senators. We're presidents. Hey, let's party. Well, the thing, the thing is, though, I mean, if, if this emergency concept has any legitimacy at all, how can they end it? Because isn't the actual emergency that they have suspended gold and silver? That's the law. I mean, and they've suspended it. Until we have legitimate money, how, I don't see how we can not have an emergency. Well, the problem is that they caused the emergency by removing the gold and silver. Right. I mean, it's one thing if I, I can sit back, if I'm sitting in the circumstances after I pull the gold out and pull the, circum, the silver out, I say, oh, my gosh, we're in an emergency. Now the law doesn't apply and doesn't protect you people from me. It's a kind of fraud. Yeah. It's a kind of deceit. All right? It's kind of treason. 
that's why I said if there's any legitimacy to it, because I don't buy the whole emergency thing. I I do buy the idea that if you as a man are being shot at and you're going 90 miles an hour backwards in a school zone, that is the rule of necessity. You had to do that. There's an emergency. You're a man. You get to do that. See, this government has no such authority or power or legitimacy to do so. There is no provision for emergency in the Constitution. They are not a living man. They have no right to survive or necessity. They have the law. These are your restrictions. This is your charter. Whose law? Law. People's law. Well, yeah, people. People. God, number one. God has God's law. That applies to the people. People make the Constitution. The Constitution sets up the government. That's the people's law. We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, not we the congressmen, senators, presidents, or, the, or courts. We the people. That's the people's law. It was evidence we got. God, number one. People, number two. And below that. After we said, we said, all right, we're going to set up a government. We're going to trust you scheming SOBs, but only within these limits. Right. That was the people's law. And the scheming SOBs said, the people have fallen asleep. They don't know what's going on. Why don't we declare an emergency and we can do anything we want? And that's what they did. Well, they and the people don't people. understand it. They told we're, everybody, and nobody, I guess, said, well, okay, so you've declared an emergency, but where is your authority to do that? Show me that. Where is that? It well, exist. yeah, kind of it does. It does, they in my opinion. They war. Now, if we're at war, then okay, we're at war, and they have certain, you know, they, they're allowed to I get do that. things. There is no provision for an emergency. Yeah, but there is implied, in my opinion. I disagree with you. I'd say it's implied that they are there to deal with emergencies. For example, when Hurricane Katrina hits New Orleans, we got some trouble, and somebody's got to solve that trouble and help those people, and it's expected. It's an emergency situation. You can't get around that easily. All right? Now, what do you do with the emergency? Well, if insofar as Congress should even be involved, I think it should be the, the, the Louisiana legislature that deals with the problem, not, not Congress. But assuming that Congress is involved, they've got to solve and resolve that emergency. You know, the Declaration of Independence says we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal and endowed by their creator of certain unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's the second sentence. It says we get our most important rights from God. And the third sentence says that the business of governments is that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Their first order of business is to secure our God-given unalienable rights. But all of that stops in the context of an emergency. We can. They don't. They they abandon. As long as we're in a state of emergency, they don't have to. Cons they don't have to secure our God-given unalienable rights. As as far as like a Katrina or any other, you know, any other disaster that we've had in this country in different places. I mean, we we have different. We're talking about the national federal government, okay? And the thing is, okay, Katrina was bad. It was probably horrible in New Orleans, but. <laughs> didn't make any difference to me here in Oregon. Yep. It wasn't an emergency for me in Oregon or anybody else in Oregon. So what do I care about New Orleans? Let Louisiana take care of it. This is not a national. Really, the only national emergency legitimacy is war. You know, because... This well, we could, have, we could have earthquakes or whatever. I mean, there's, there's well, a sure, line the here. But here's, has an earthquake. here's the point. The business of Congress is to deal with emergencies. 
That's one of their primary deals. They pass laws. Oh, my gosh, Hurricane Katrina. Oh, my gosh, a national depression. Oh, my gosh, we've got an emergency here, there, or whatever. Okay, deal with it and finish it and put us back into a state of peace. But what they've done instead, they've emulated Raul Emanuel and, and Hillary Clinton. They said a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. More importantly, they, their argument is an emergency is a terrible thing to waste. And if they can sustain the emergency, how the hell do we have a Congress? We had a problem in 1933, and here we are, what, 67, 87, 91 years later? Am I, if I'm doing my math correctly, 81, 91, what if they haven't solved that emergency? They should have solved that emergency. Well, not only haven't they solved But they the sustained it because it gives them powers they were never intended to have. And then they built on top of that with more emergencies. They yeah, I know. other emergencies on top of that one. My understanding is they, they, they virtually never operate without at least three or four emergencies on the books. I saw where they declared that the, this goes back a decade ago, maybe more, the, the problem they had in what was Czechoslovakia, no, not Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia. Oh, they had Serbia and their SSS. They declared a national emergency because of Serbia. <laughs> All right, what are they going to do? Are they going to ride over here on, what, horses and camels or something like that, and they're going to assault this country? But they had another national emergency, and they keep a couple of them on the books, keep a couple of them going all the time. It is a pretext for gaining power over the people. Their job is to solve the emergency. We've got a problem, all right, emergency, deal with it. But get rid of it. Don't sit there and extend it for 80, 90 years in order to ignore the Constitution. And, and that's what they've done. Then we go back to the question. Okay, so they've got an emergency in the United States. Where is that exactly? Yeah, exactly. You <laughs> know, because I doubt, you know, pointing this out to them, they're going to say, oh, gosh, you know, you're right. No. We should just stop this. This is crazy. Gosh, what were we thinking? Thanks for pointing that out. Yeah. Uh, they're not going to do that. They're not going to stop. I not mean, voluntarily. No, not voluntarily at all. So, the, you know, the only other thing is to say, well, okay, you're doing what you want to do over where you're at, but that's not where I'm at. So have oh, a wait a minute. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. You know, if if you really understood the concept of emergency <laughs> – what is your obligation to pay income tax? You know, they say, oh, well, gee, I wanted to. You know, I really want, but we're in a state of emergency. Yeah. <laughs> Congress has declared, and that means the laws are in a state of suspension. <laughs> and guess what? I don't have to pay the income tax because it's an emergency. Yeah. The government uses emergency to get at us. I wonder if we could use emergency to get at them and just say, gee, you can't hold. Gee, yeah, I was. I was going, you know, 50 miles an hour in reverse in the school zone. Nobody was shooting at me, but still, the Congress has declared there's a national emergency. Well, yeah, and I wanted to pay and all that, but, you know, yeah. what? I just don't have you know. the money. Yeah. And uh, out of self-necessity here and self-preservation, well, I need that money for food. I'm sorry. I, I would have wanted to pay you, but, Maybe I even needed them for drugs. You know, in the, in the in the state of emergency, it's so stressful. I need I need a couple of hits every once in a while to yeah. make it make it through. You know, you know, you know it's like, I, I, officer will pick up. Keep I, up I declared up. it necessary. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, and we have an emergency, so it's all good. You know, yeah, why not? Hey, 
Well, what you know what? It goes along the same lines as the whole banking situation. Now, a lot of people try, you know, I mean, this was the argument behind the Liberty Dollar and stuff. Well, you know, if they're doing it, we can do it. Well, they all went to jail because, you know, that's that's not how they view it, that, that you can just start up a new currency and compete with the, you know, Federal Reserve notes. But it's just like selling drugs in the hood. Do you understand? Yeah, there are some street corners that you can't sell from those corners because the big boys are running those corners and they ain't going to take any competition from the small-time drug dealers. Same thing's going on with our Federal Reserve notes. Yep. They're only a drug in their own way. And if you try to set up on a street corner where you're competing with the big drug dealers, guess what? Yep. You expect a drive-by shooting. However, you know, there's a lot of things like, okay, you know, the whole the whole credit debt thing. When you understand how it really works, you know, this whole thing about, oh my gosh, my credit rate, oh my gosh, this and that and the other thing, uh, you know, when you really understand how things, how, how paper, how commercial paper is created, and you realize that, wait a minute, my signature is actually creating this credit, yeah. which is a debt, which you're using as an asset, and then you're running it through your little scheme and, and loaning out ten times the amount? Hmm. Should I be getting a cut? I mean, instead of me paying, should I be getting a cut of this? That's exactly right. I mean, With fractional reserve banking, they may be – you go in and sign a note for a quarter million dollars, and they can – and they can, in theory, they can use that to loan out ten, nine or ten times that much money yeah. that they don't have, which means they can build – Ten houses based on your signature, and you're going to pay for the first house for thirty years. Yeah, shouldn't I? And they have the money, and they get to profit off the other nine, and you get nothing. Yeah, I'm thinking I should be getting a cut out. Well, yeah. What, what about me? You know, that's my signature on it. That's what gave it. That's what gave it value. Was my promise to pay? You know, and once people realize what, and this is the real problem. I mean, and I'm not the first to say it. I mean some very knowledgeable insider bad people have said, you know, something to the effect that, hey, you know, if the people ever found out what we were doing, oh, yeah. they, they'd hang us. You, yep. know? I mean, you know, and yeah, that's exactly true. right. And that's part of what we do on this program. Right. And I don't know if you, you don't sell the ropes. If you don't sell, is there any rope commercials on this program, are there? Boy, when people start getting smarter, I might get invested in ropes. It might not be a bad idea. You know, hey, Oregon's moving towards the whole, uh, you know, hemp thing to where, uh, you know, they're going to start uh, manufacturing commercial hemp products here. So maybe uh, some nice quality hemp ropes. That's a little rough, though. You know, hemp is a little bit uh, yeah, kind of chicks. Yes, but you can use chicks. it over and over again. And, you know, uh -huh. I, I think there's going to be a lot of use for it. It may be. Let's take another break for some commercials. I'm Alfred Adams here with Frank Stefan on the American Independence. I'll we'll be back and talk more about emergency powers. Please stay tuned.
Few things in this world are more important than clean, pure water. Understanding this, ABR makes four tabletop water distillers available to you for purchase. First, we have the five and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $139. The second is a five and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $189. The third is a three and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $189. And our premier tabletop distiller is a three and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $250. All our distillers have a stainless steel boiling pot, dome, and cooling tubes. And the premier version also has a splash flap to protect against contamination of the cooling tubes. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com for more information and protect your water supply. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it. Nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. Hi, folks. I'm Alfred Addis here with Frank Stefan on the American Independence Hour. Uh, we're talking about emergency powers. This is a complete, this is a terrible act of treason. And ultimately what it's done is to destroy, disparage, subvert the states of the United States of America and substitute these alternative territories districts, and even states of the United States. The state of the United States is not the same as the state of the United States of America. Two different entities. The first, is, the first one I mentioned is territorial, but the states of the United States are, they're like national. They're like individual nations in many regards, and they gave only certain limited powers to Congress. But they did one thing, and I think there's another section in the Constitution, I can't point to you right now, I think there's something in Article 1 where they also expanded the congressional power within the districts, within the territories. Article 4, Section 3, Clause 2 declares the Congress shall have power to, let me see this, hold this up, to dispose of, all right, there it is, dispose of and make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory or other property belonging to the United States. All right? 
Article 4, Section 3, Clause 2. When they say they have power to dispose of, that means they own it. The right of disposal is always reserved for whoever holds legal title to the property in question. All right? If you only have equitable title, the right of use, you don't have the right of disposal. Most of you uh, listening probably know that in your state, you get a car, you buy a car, you drive around the car, the rest of that sort of thing. You have the right to possess it. You have the right to operate it. You think of it as your car, but can you dispose of it? Or are there special requirements where you've got to contact the state and submit a form and say, I've been driving this car, I've got 200,000 miles on it, it's wrecked, and I want to dispose of it in the junkyard. You need the government's, you need the state's permission, and that's evidence that the state has legal title. The right of disposal attaches to legal title. It does not attach to equitable title. Congress shall have power to dispose of and make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory or other property belonging to the United States. That's not the United States of America, in my opinion. And I believe these are two different entities. They're telling us that within the territories, Congress is the sovereign. Right? People aren't the sovereign in the territories. Congress is the sovereign. They have the right to make all needful rules and regulations. They're the sovereign. They're the lawmaker. Right? Within the states of the union, the people are the sovereigns. Right? Different situation. They grant powers to Congress. If Congress can fool you, deceive you into believing that you are in a territory rather than a state of the union or in fact, not just fool you, but dumb you down where you don't even understand the difference between the two. Where are you? Well, I'm in Texas, of course. Everybody knows that. I live in Texas. Yeah? What is Texas? Are we talking about a state of the union or are we talking about a territory? Today, I believe it's perceived to be a territory, and if it is, Congress can do anything it wants within the territory of Texas. It can only exercise limited powers found in Article I of the Constitution in relationship to the state of Texas. Remember, state of the perpetual union styled the United States of America. So they gave them an opening here that has been abused, and then it's under, the, under the pretense of an emergency, they're sitting back and saying, well, there's no money. In Article I, Section 10, Clause 1 says, no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender and payment of debt. And the government says, oh, my gosh, the gold is gone. The silver is gone. We can know the states can no longer function. This is an emergency. And the government steps in and says, now we can do anything we want because you don't have any gold and silver. You are no longer effectively a state of the union. You have been supplanted by a territory. And the government says this is an emergency despite the fact that the government is the one that took the gold and silver away. Well. See, I, I think that the actual emergency started at the Civil War. Well, it might I be. That's when, I think that's when everything changed, when, you know, when the quorum was, was lost in Congress, they couldn't do business. That's yeah. when Lincoln wrote the first executive order. And that's when they came up with the Lieber Code, which is basically the rules of martial law. And, you know, the thing is, it's like, okay, so... Lincoln was assassinated before he could reinstitute the uh, South into the Union again because they were still under military rule. 
And, uh, you know, and then we get to 1933, and I think what the Congress just did was say, hey, you know what, we've decided we want that gold, and uh, you're not states anyway, and uh, you're defeated uh, people. We're the rulers, and uh, it's ours. It's an emergency. Yeah. Well, you know, that's under the pretense. The emergency is the pretext. Um, but we're, you know, if, if the Congress was, uh, if, they were, if they were any good, if you had any decent congressmen, senators, even presidents in your lifetime, they would have worked to end the emergency that started in 1933. Instead, they all defend it and prolong it and maintain it, either out of ignorance or treason. I I don't know if anybody – it's hard for me to believe that nobody else has ever done this, but uh, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to send a request to my state representative and my state senators because they won't, you know, the, the attorney general and the secretary of state won't answer me, but they will answer them. And uh, I'm going to ask them, how do you, how do you do this? I mean, the Constitution says you're not, you're not allowed to take anything but gold and silver. How is it that you do fines and taxes and all these other things? Can you get an answer for me? I, I, it's hard for me to believe nobody's done that. Yeah, maybe not. It's hard to believe that nobody's done it, but not many have done it if they have. And I don't know the answer. So, and I've looked. For two the possible answer. answers. Two possible answers that I'm able to understand. Insofar as your state government is operating with Federal Reserve notes, it's operating in violation of Article One, Section Ten, Clause One which says no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender and payment of debt. Your state government is not doing that. There's two explanations that I can understand. One, your state government is in violation of Article 1, Section 10, Clause 1 of the Constitution of the United States and is operating illegally and arguably treasonously to conduct business with Federal Reserve notes rather than gold or silver coin. That's one explanation. The other explanation is that whatever you've got for a state government is not a government of a state of the union. The Article 1, Section 10, Clause 1 says, no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender and payment of debt. They're talking about states of the union because that was the only kind they had when they wrote the Constitution. No state of the union can make, but it doesn't say no no territory. It doesn't say no district, as in the sense of Washington, D.C., if they can bamboozle you into consenting or ignorantly assenting to the idea that you're in a territory rather than a state of the union, there's nothing wrong with Federal Reserve notes. You can use all you want with territories. I think what we're actually in uh, is military districts, and I think the Federal Reserve notes are being used as scripts. Could be. And, and that's how, you know, this is what they did in World War II in Europe. You know, U.S. troops were paid in script. They weren't paid in Federal Reserve notes, and they weren't paid in the local currency. Yep. They were paid in military script, which is nothing but monopoly money. But mm-hmm. they could buy things with it. it. Well, they could purchase things with it. Right. They could Technic, purchase yeah. with it. You know, they could get what they wanted with this script. But it wasn't, it wasn't U.S. money, and it wasn't local money. It was military script. Yeah. You know, and I think that's what the Federal Reserve basically is. And I think we've been we're in military districts, and it is you know it it could be something else, but regardless of what it is, 
It's Nobody not states of the union. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why when I start the program, I'm making the complaint. I'm making the claim right from the beginning. I'm broadcasting from within a state of the union. It's not an accident that I do that. It's a certain amount of self-defense. It may be wishful thinking. It's like I got a rabbit's foot and a four-leaf clover and whatever else. I don't know. And I also claim to be within a state of the union. Well, maybe the rabbit's foot and the four-leaf clover help me. Maybe they don't. But I'm telling you. If I say something in this broadcast that the government finds offensive, they're going to have to put this broadcast up and make it available to a jury, in theory, worst-case scenario. And I'm going to have an opportunity to explain. I was was broadcasting from within a state of the union, and is there anyone on the government side? Do you have a witness who's going to testify? Oh, no, you aren't. (laughs) You were in a territory. You were in a military district. Who's going to to testify to that? Well, yeah, and that's really the thing. And once you make this statement yeah. now it has to be rebutted that's the theory you know i mean the thing is it's like they can't just well you, well we're just going to ignore that uh no well they might be able to do it they've got a bunch of guns i mean if they really wanted to <laughs> railroad i know i know i know for a fact you know chug a chug a chug here comes the railroad uh it can happen sure yeah but well, i'm just saying it won't be business as usual if you want to bring me in railroad me i don't doubt you can do it but you know you're gonna have to work at it well, yeah, and that's the whole thing, the whole porcupine theory. Got to be a porcupine about it. You know, it's like, yeah, you, you know, the tiger can eat a porcupine, but he'll be sorry. You know, yeah. You know, yeah. porcupine will be dinner, but that, that tiger is going to be picking, uh, you know, thorns out of his mouth for quite some time. It may be more than that. Yeah. It may be, oh, my God. It's the last time I'll eat skunk before I eat another that's porcupine. Right, you know, and, yeah, a guy in Portland, he used to call himself the Portland Porcupine. He, I said, why do you call yourself that? And, you know, this is like 25 years ago, and he told me that. And I said, man, you know what? That really makes a lot of sense to me. Well, I understand. You know, they're running a business. And they will tell you, or the court, they'll talk to his customers. Right. Right? They're running a business, and there's no point to doing business. It's like, you know, that's, that's what it is in Las Vegas at the casinos. They don't want people who count cards coming in there and winning money. They're not in business to give money away. They're not in business to spend a small fortune, uh, you know, to spend $5,000 in legal fees and court costs and the rest of that to catch some guy who's, who's been charged with a seatbelt violation. The way the system works is ideally they give you a ticket for a couple hundred dollars, you put the money in the envelope and send it in. As soon as you start going to court, you're costing them money. Now they're not going to make any money off that couple hundred dollar ticket. All right? And if you appeal things, <laughs> then they're really in trouble. I mean, they say, oh, you're guilty. You owe us. All right, fine. I'm going to appeal. Right. And, and then start going to the press be, and, and getting in the fine. newspaper and all kinds of other things. It's like, oh, my gosh, this was a mistake. We could have walked huh? away. We should have probably, hey, you know what? Next time. Let's yeah, that's what it is. You know, yeah, you've got to make your bones, essentially. Yeah, you do. You've got to make your bones, which means you've got to show up in court. They've got to have a record. Say, this SOB, he, he'll actually go to court, and, and he'll appeal. Yeah. And they'll do it over and over again. again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Once they understand that, they're going to sit back. Unless somebody really wants to get you, they're going to sit back. Just leave him alone. Leave him alone. He costs money. Costs money to prosecute this guy. We don't want... 
We don't want to lose money on this on this deal. Just leave him alone. We got plenty of other idiots to shear out here. Let's get the idiots and leave this guy alone. Now, if they really want this guy, though, not a doubt that they can come in and uh, you know you can kiss a bunch of years of your life goodbye because big problem. We're going to talk about let's on this emergency powers. I'm operating and I'm operating on the assumption again this article is there on my blog at adask a d a s k dot wordpress dot com just a short little article short little video six minutes and forty seconds but we're talking about the significance of the emergency powers and what I believe is going on I think the emergency powers only apply within the districts and territories and I think Article four section three clause two says Congress can do anything it wants in the district and the territories. That's constitutional. Emergency powers. You can't just go to court and say, oh, the emergency powers are unconstitutional. They're not unconstitutional. Well, and, and You've got to say they're unconstitutional within this state of the union. Well, if you look at most of the, uh, almost all, the, the court cases that have found anything unconstitutional, very rarely find it, you know, facial just completely unconstitutional. Right. Very rarely. They, they, they will usually say, well, it's unconstitutional in this area for this guy under these circumstances and all that. And, yeah, okay, so it was for him. But that yep. doesn't mean it will be for you. Yep. And that's how they word right. these things. Yeah, and it's evidence of what we're talking about, that what we're talking about here is correct. They won't say the bill is unconstitutional, the law is unconstitutional. You have to go in and argue if you want it. If they're going to agree with you, you are going to have to argue that the bill is unconstitutional, or the law you're subject to is unconstitutional as applied in your particular case. And if you're sensitive, there may be a number of ways that you can get around that. But in my opinion, one of the things you're going to want to argue, it's unconstitutional because I did all of my work. My, everything I was accused of doing took place within the borders of a state of the union. Yeah, I think, you know, that's... Now it's unconstitutional. And once you make that, once you make that point and, you it, know, use whatever... Yeah, evidence, just say it. I mean, you've got to back it up and well, it's sure, not even but done. They, but once you do all that, they have to rebut that then. Yep. They can't just say, no, it ain't. You know, I mean, okay, maybe at the lower court they can, but somewhere along the line, you know, somebody's going to say, look, we can't just say no, it's no, it ain't. We have to actually address this. And, you know, and that's the thing that people have to realize that, look, you know, every court case that's been won at the Supreme Court level, they lost every other case before that. Yeah. You know, they lost at the district court. They lost at the circuit court. They lost at the appeals court. And you mean the plaintiff in the case, right? or presumably, maybe the defendant, they lost at all the lower courts, and then, finally, they won at the Supreme Court. Right. So, you know, you, you just because you, you know, lose a couple of times doesn't mean you're wrong and that you can't win. Yeah. Because every one of those Supreme Court cases only got there because they lost every, every place else. And you can imagine the kind of persistence that that requires. Sure. You get court after court after court telling you you're wrong, you're guilty, you, you're you bad plaintiff, whatever. <laughs> and then maybe if you're lucky, you get to the Supreme Court and they say, no, you've got a pointer. Yeah. It takes a lot of persistence and it's rare for an individual to have enough psychological resources, educational resources, and financial resources to push that case all the way up to the Supreme Court. It's almost miraculous when something like that happens.
Let's take a break for our last set of commercials, and Frank and I will be back to talk more about emergency powers. Please stay tuned. United States of America, not United States, 
The proper name for the perpetual union that's declared in the Articles of Confederation is the United States of America. You can find this for yourself, and it's worth your trouble to look it up. At first, you'll be a little surprised, then you'll say, oh, my gosh. Proper name for this country, the perpetual union. Perpetual means it can't die. It can't be supplanted. It can't be replaced. They've got to cover some wallpaper over it where we... We ignore it. We don't realize it's there, but the union is perpetual. It lasts forever, which means you can make claims on that, or they have to say, they have to admit that the union is not perpetual, and I don't think they can get around that. I don't think they want, I don't think they want to face that issue. Any case, then the fifth point, you got to, I would argue that you're not in a state of emergency. All right? I would deny that. And then six, argue that you're entitled to separation of powers. Why? Because administrative law, if you look to the, if you look to Am, uh, Amjur, the American Jurisprudence Encyclopedia, and you look up the article on administrative law, it will tell you expressly that administrative law is the combination of all three fundamental powers of government under a single authority. You've got the legislative, the executive, and the judicial. They're all working together. Which they right? call the fourth branch of government, which is not authorized under any law. That's exactly right. There's no constitutional authorization for a fourth branch of government. Um, but nevertheless, they refer to that. I'm going to argue that that separation of powers only takes place within the territories, or excuse me, that the violation of the separation of powers takes place in the districts and the territories, but within the State of the Union. It's expressly guaranteed in the Texas Constitution. I, they say they, they, it's Article 2 of the Texas Constitution says separation of division of powers is what they say in the Texas Constitution, and they say nobody operating, exercising any of the powers of one branch of government can exercise any of the powers of the other, other two. We don't have a judge who sits there and he can work as a legislator and work as an executive in the executive branch. The judge does only judicial, the executive does only executive, and the uh, legislature does only legislation. They have separation of powers. You're entitled to that as one of the people, not as one of the citizens, not as one of the inhabitants, not as one of the occupants. You've got to read and get these words down. You've got to argue that I'm one of the people. I'm entitled to separation of powers. And therefore, I do not consent to be subject to administrative law or administrative process. Now, I think that puts a knot in their rope. You understand? I can't prove it, but I think that's a strong and powerful argument uh, that you don't consent to administrative law or administrative process because I think that's all they've got. Well, they've got to deal with it. That's, that's, that's where it puts them. One way or another, they're going to have to deal with it. Even well, maybe decide, the cop doesn't show up. Well, yeah, and, and, you know, and even if they decide, okay, we're not going to deal with it, we're just going to not show up, and you're going to, you know, fine, then fine. You know, you do that, you keep doing that, and you're going to find out you don't get pulled over as much as you used to. Yeah, I understand. You know, and I'm not, uh, you know, into the conspiracy thing that they got some sort of code or something under your name or anything. I think when you live in an area, you know, people, and, and you've think... made enough noise, people, they don't need to look you up on a computer to know, oh, they're, yeah, there he I goes about yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. You know, that rock yeah, I understand. There. I know him. Yeah, stay away from him. You know, I don't see him doing anything bad or anything. Just leave him alone, you know. And we've got something here from the
the chat room that's pretty interesting. Rex says, regarding military script and military districts, it has been said that all of the post offices, even in places where they are not profitable, are military outposts, evidencing an occupying army. Well, you know, the zip code would be a great thing to, you know, uh, to, you know, distinguish military districts. Well, I think I have no doubt that if you're using a zip code in your mailing address, that's prima facie evidence. That's one of the things. If you want to prove that you are within the borders of a state of the union, you better not make a habit of having your name on mail that has a zip code on it. If you're receiving that zip code, in my opinion, is purely territorial. It's associated with territories and or the districts. It is not. I don't believe the zip code is in the states of the union. If you're using that, you've got to change your ways. As we were saying earlier, you know, we can make some of these arguments, but they're not easy to implement. I mean, this is a tough business. This net, this matrix has been cast about us in a way that you can't hardly make a move without getting into it. Do you have, I've heard stories that I believe to be true of individuals who've gone into court and made arguments along this line. And the judge tells the bailiff to inspect them to see what kind of money they've got in their pockets. And if you've got any Federal Reserve notes in your wallet, they are going to use that as prima facie evidence. No, you're in the territory. You voluntarily went into the territory because you got the kind of currency that only works legally in the territories. Mm -hmm. Right? You want to go into court, good idea not to carry any cash in your pocket. might not be a bad idea to carry some silver or gold. Well, yeah, because if they do go ahead and say, see what's in his pocket. Well, okay, so you don't have Federal Reserve notes. That's great. But if they come up with, you know, a gold coin mm-hmm. or a silver coin, it's like, yeah. okay, now there's prima facie evidence going the other way. So I understand that. There's not a lack of evidence. There's Now there's you're going the other way with it. Now, with the zip code thing, I, uh, you know, for a long time, I mean, I, I've been, uh, I always try to do my mail with, uh, in care of. Yep. You know, and that what that means is, is that I have my name and then I say in care of and yep. then uh, the rest of it, because quite frankly, my mailbox is two miles away from my house down on the road. So now, it might you're it arguing might that the mailbox there, is in the territory, but the house is not that safe. That, that yep. mailbox might very well be in the territory. And so go ahead and send it to the territory and I'll go pick it up. You know, I mean, because, you know, because they, I've tried not using the zip code. They'll just put it on there for you. I mean, they just look it up and put it on your mail at the post office. No, I understand. I understand that. You can object to it. Or what I do is I make a photocopy, a color copy with a scanner of whatever I'm putting in the mail without a zip code. I'm saying this is the way I'm mailing this thing. And when somebody adds that zip code to it it's not with the same color ink it's not with the same stroke of the pen as i use to put that together and i'm going to argue they added that and that's from my perspective that's fraud mail fraud yeah that's yeah. Crime. i'm sending it to somebody within a state of the union and they're saying no you still got to go to somebody in a territory and there's a problem here and i don't know if the argument came to court who's going to win them or me but i don't think they want that no. argument and it's the same thing with my like my street address i live in a rural area and i live on a dirt road but everybody still has you know their their 
their number, right? Their their yep. street address. But you see, I looked into it and I find out that, well, okay, you know what? I don't own the road, and if I don't own the road, well, then whoever owns the road can number whatever pieces of the road they want to number. And if they want to say, well, you live, you know, next to, you know, here, okay, so what I've done is I I have, I used to have a herd of goats, and, you know, you when you register them, you name. So I named my place after the herd of goats, and I put that sign on my gate, this is the name of this place, right, you know? Like kind of like you see Rosebud, you know, in the old uh, uh, Orson Welles movie. But out on the road, I've got this big rock that I that I got, you know, a cement thing in it, and I put the number on it. And that's the number. It's out there on. It's that rock out on the road, you know. And you know, I do this because hey, I want UPS to know where I'm at. I want people to be able to... Sure, I know that. It's very difficult to avoid what has become 99.99% of whatever's going on in this country. It's hard to... And you can try to say, okay, fine. You know, but when you understand what it all is, it's like, okay, fine. You want to number the road? Fine, number the road. It's your road. You know, the county says they own the road, so they want to number the road? Fine. I'll even put a rock out there with the number on there that you say, "Hey, right here, this is the this is the this is the 6500 block of our oh, road." How big is that rock you're talking about? Oh, pretty big. It's I don't know. Pretty big. It's uh, a couple like, hundred pounds or fifty pounds or what are we talking oh, about? Oh gosh, probably more like six hundred pounds. All right. I, you know, I would argue no. That's <laughs> there's the address right there. That is. There it is. <laughs> this is the house up here. We don't have an address up here. That's the address of the rock. Right, and care of, and yeah. care of. Send it to the rock. I'll pick yeah. it up. You know, yeah. <laughs> just yeah. drop it off by the rock. You know, and I'll go pick it up. Yeah, no problem. You know, and uh, that's that's it works for UPS. They leave it outside the gate. You know. Yeah, and, You know, so you know, some you, stuff is doable, and some people are succeeding at this, and maybe a lot more than we suspect. You've got to be able to. Explain it though, and Absolutely. to do that, you've got to be able to understand it. And yep. and the thing is, you know, you can say, okay, look, and and these arguments, maybe they're not all. Maybe I'm wrong, but everything I've I've looked at says that I'm not wrong, and I believe I'm not wrong, and I understand why I'm saying what I'm saying, and I can explain it. Yep. So I'm doing that. So now it's up to you if you want to say no, that ain't right. Well, okay, then tell me what's right. And they don't want to do that. No, I know. They don't want to do that. Uh, And that's part of the deal on this. If we are correct and they're running two systems, there are states of the union, the vestiges of the states of the union are still here because the union is perpetual. But, oh, they are overlaid with these territories. And when they say state, they might mean state of the United States or they might mean state of the union. Two different entities. The states of the United States are just territories, administrative districts. The states of the Union are, in many regards, almost separate nations, which is which. They say, are you in this state? And you say, yeah, of course I'm in this state. And they say, ha-ha, gotcha. Yeah, because they don't say it out loud, but it's an extraordinary word game. It's sort of thing that is akin to sorcery, yeah. black magic. 
if you say certain words, if you say certain words, you can go to jail. Yep. Because you're saying the wrong words. On the other hand, if you say other set of words, if you can learn what the other set of words are and you can say them, it appears that you might not go to jail. You know, people want to say, well, you're just playing word games. And you, uh-huh. Yeah, that's, yeah you that's better believe right. it. <laughs> yeah. And so is the government that we're bumping heads with. That's all they're doing is playing word games. And if you can play the game, I don't think they want to deal with it. I won't say that they won't do it. It's not like you're guaranteed to, you know, be able to do anything you want from here on because you're articulate. That's not enough. Now, somebody's asking in the chat room, and I don't know the answer to this, is mail delivery at your door a federal benefit? Well, I wouldn't be surprised if it's construed as some sort of benefit. It's construed as some sort of evidence that you are, that the doorway is to an address in this state. Yeah, I think that's true. But, you know, as far as the benefit goes, I don't know, because, you know, somebody's paying for it. People are buying stamps. They're buying postage. They're, well, they're, you know, they're, I don't know, they're using the script to buy it. But they're they are using whatever the money in the realm is to buy this stuff. So it's not like it's a handout or, a, you know, a free thing. It's just, uh, you know, I don't know. And I, I think that if it is, you know, it, it's all going down on the road, you know, down on the road, and that little steel box. <laughs> well, know, the, the what we've seen here is here, here where I live at Garland, uh, within in Dallas County, the county of Dallas, within the state of Texas. We've seen the plots, the way they set up the land and the city and the rest of that. And we have a strong suspicion that I can't prove. But you've got the street, you've got the curb, then you've got a section of grass, then you've got the sidewalk, then you've got the front lawn of the house, and you've got the house. Right. All right? We strongly suspect that the address is actually the space between the curb and the sidewalk. That yeah. may be the territory, and the other side of the sidewalk, back on the house side, it may be that you are... Maybe the argument can be made that you are within the State of the Union, but the post, the mailbox, is there in that section. Right. It's there in a section between the curb and between the sidewalk. That little thing. We think maybe that's the territory, but we don't know what to well, be that's what, man, That makes sense to me, and that's basically the idea that I've been going on. Well, I'll tell you what. We're going to have to go on these ideas next Tuesday again, and we will uh, consider them at that time. Frank and I are out of time. I want to thank all of you for listening. I hope you'll tune in again next Tuesday. In the meantime, the good Lord bless you, me, Frank, the producer. I'm Alfred Addis. Good night.
American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19, 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Few things in this world are more important than clean, pure water. Understanding this, ABR makes four tabletop water distillers available to you for purchase. First, we have the five and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $139. The second is a five and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $189. The third is a three and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $189. And our premier tabletop distiller is a three and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $250. All our distillers have a stainless steel boiling pot, dome, and cooling tubes. And the premier version also has a splash flap to protect against contamination of the cooling tubes. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com for more information and protect your water supply. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe, all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC sees in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. 
No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free to air satellite system from ABR. The ABR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75 centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541. 541- Two two five four six five nine. That's five four one two two five four six five nine. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System.
right, good evening all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is still the 27th of January, 2015. Why do I say still? Well, because I was on at noon, like I am every day. Well, every day, Monday through Friday. And it was January 27th then, and it still is January 27th, 2015. It's about 10 minutes after 8 p.m. out here on the Pacific Time Coast. You're somewhere else. You'll have to adjust. And if you do and you find out, hey, uh, that's right now, where that means he's live, that means you can participate in the show. You have a couple of different ways to do that. You can go and call in, 800-596-8191, or you can go to the website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. Look for the link that says chat, click it, and you're in there. You can make comments, ask questions, or just chat with the other folks in there. You don't have to ask questions. You don't have to participate in the show. You don't even have to talk to the other folks in there. You can just lurk about and see what they're saying. But anyway, it's there for you. And if we're live, you can uh, do that. And the, um, by the way, the chat room is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So, you know, you can always go in there and, uh, you know, talk to somebody. There's usually somebody in there. You know, every once in a while, There'll be nobody in there but me, but not very often. Uh, most of the time, there's uh, somebody else in there besides me. Anyway, so it's there for your use. Uh, you know, you can talk to people that are probably more like-minded than uh, you're. I say that only because, uh, you know, it's been my experience that people uh, – Liberty movement, truth movement, patriot movement, whatever you want to call it, uh, seem to all have something in common that, you know, their family members, or at least most of their family members. Now, some some people have a couple people in their family, but most of them, most of their family views them as the oddball black sheep. You know, you, uh, you know, you're one of those crazy tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy nut theorists out there. You know, gee, you probably don't even think we went to the moon. <laughs> okay, well, anyway, I missed, I missed seventh grade science class where they explained the Van Allen belt. But hey, you know. That was back when public school actually had science class. I don't think they do that anymore because, well, why do you need that for when we have Indians from India, I mean, not, you know, Native Americans because we're not supposed to call Certainly not Redskins. Oh, my gosh. You know, there's news, huh? Yeah, that's that's what people got to worry about is the name of a football team. Ooh, we got to change that. That's been that name for a hundred years, but you know now it's offensive. It's anyway. Uh, get on to some news. Oh man, you know the Republican Party is just a disgrace. 
you know, okay, look, that goes without saying for the Democratic Party, right? I mean, you know, they're the Communist Party. People pretty much get that. There is very few what you would even describe as moderate Democrats. Put, put it this way. John F. Kennedy was a Democrat. Do you think he would be welcome in the Democratic Party now? For a matter of fact, John F. Kennedy would be considered a conservative, radical, Ted Cruz sort of guy in the Republican Party at this point. And he was a Democrat, for crying out loud. Folks, you know, I, you know, I can I can say this, but you know, I, I have no hopes of it ever happening because I really truly believe the federal system is too broken to fix, and that we'd really be better off just, you know, putting it to sleep. I mean, honestly, I really believe that, but here we are, and uh, you know, we need more than. Parties. We need like five or six parties. Folks, don't you believe there's enough opinions in a, in a nation of 330 or 40 million people to have five or six parties, five or six different points of views being represented politically? Don't you think that's possible? Why is that so outlandish of an idea? Huh? I mean, why is it we have one party? We have one party, folks. We have the Communist Party. That's what we have. And yeah, oh, we're the we're the radical communists and we're the moderate communists. That's the difference between the Republican and Democratic Party at this point. And yes, okay, there's a few conservative people in the Republican Party, and I mean a few. Marco Rubio is no conservative. Give me a break. Now, Ted Cruz is very, he's pretty much a conservative. Out of, out of all of them, I like Ted Cruz the best. And of course, I don't trust Ted Cruz. I don't trust any of them. You, you get to that level, you, you've got dirt, which means you're being blackmailed, which means you're under somebody's thumb and you will not say certain things and you will push certain things and you are controlled. facing a rebellion in their own ranks. House Republican leaders scrapped their plans to vote this week on their first border security bill of the new Congress, blaming the weather. Yeah, yeah, it's the weather. You know, that blizzard that never showed up. So Congress is blaming an imaginary storm. Good God, folks. I mean, how how much more are we going to accept from these people before somebody stands up and says, you know, hey, wait a minute. You're so full of crap. You try to pull this on us again, and you can kiss your job goodbye, Pally. And not only that, you better find a new place to live. Don't be coming back here if you're going to start pulling this kind of stuff. The weather? The weather? The weather that never happened? The phony blizzard that never was? 
Oh, we're blaming the weather. That never happened. Yeah, there you go. It's the second bill in as many weeks that Republican leaders, this is John Bonehead, all right, had to pull after internal opposition. Last week, now get this, conservative, really? Is that right? The GOP scrapped the bill to ban abortions after 20 weeks of pregnancy. Golly. Banning late-term abortions. Oh, guess what? Yeah. Some of the female Republican House members had concerns. Because, you know, we want to be able to kill babies right until the minute they're born. That's our right. It's a woman's right to kill her baby until, you know, the second it's born. I mean, if its feet are sticking out and you chop its head off, hey, no problem. That's not murder. It's just, uh, you know, my right. The border bill had to be pulled after conservatives objected, saying it didn't do enough to build the border fence or step up enforcement against illegal aliens in the interior of the United States. You know, Bonehead tried to push this thing through, this lily white little uh, la, 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 la. Yeah, it's an immigration bill because it says so right on the top, but it didn't do anything. You know, folks, these guys, they got elected, folks that went out there and voted. You voted in all these Republicans. They've got a huge majority in the House of Representatives. They got a majority in the Senate. It was a big, big victory, a big swing. Why? Because the American people want illegal aliens out of this country. They want the Congress to stop bringing in legal aliens to steal their high-paying jobs. Okay? They want Obamacare exterminated, put to sleep, given some comfort care. Okay? Whatever way you want to look at it, the American people voted in these guys because they want two things done. And what does the Republican Congress do? Nothing. Nothing. John Bonehead with his little pink tie is up there crying his way all through the whole thing going, oh, you know, hey. Uh, you know, he almost lost his speakership. I wish he did. I'm, I, I'm disgusted in the Republicans for reelecting him as Speaker of the House. Chill. The guy's no Republican. He's no conservative. As a matter of fact, I'm ashamed of the people in Ohio for electing this guy again. But, hey, you know, while I'm being ashamed of Ohio, I might as well, you know, you know, and here's a state I actually lived in for a while, Pennsylvania. Well, did I say state? I mean Commonwealth. Yeah. Here's some reasons to be ashamed of Pennsylvania. A transgender physician will soon become Pennsylvania's new physician general. Yeah. Dr. <laughs> Dr. Rachel Levine, an expert. Now, get this. Get this. An expert, now this is a transgender, all right? An expert in adolescent eating disorders and behavior health was nominated for the Commonwealth's highest medical post by progressive, meaning communist, Governor Tom Wolf. She made her transition from man to woman five years ago, with, and with her appointment, 
will become the highest-ranking transgender freak to ever hold a position within the state government. Levine graduated from Harvard College and Tulane University Medical School and has practiced Get this. Okay, this is a transgender. This is some freak who went from being a guy to a woman, okay? Obviously got some mental problems, right? Serious, big-time mental problems. Yeah, has this, this freak has practiced pediatrics, meaning with your children, and psychiatry for about 30 years. Yeah, psychiatry. Okay, so what? Psychiatry? Well, you know what? This just goes to prove what I've always said. People who get into psychiatry and psychology only do so because they're so screwed up. They're looking for answers to find out why they're so screwed up, so they go into these professions to try to figure out their own messed up mind. And what ends up happening is they don't figure out anything. They just go out and start screwing up everybody else's mind. It has been a physician at Penn State Milton S. Hershey Medical Center since 1996 and also serves as a professor of pediatrics and psychiatry at Penn State College of Medicine. You remember Penn State, don't you? You know, where that football coach was, uh, you know, molesting little boys? You know, Penn State, yeah, let's see. I wonder how that could happen when you've got professors of pediatrics, children, and psychiatry working at Penn State College, and then you have a football coach molesting little boys in the locker room. I'm so shocked. Unbelievable. Uh, You know, give me a break. You know, here we go. This is what's going on. This is the state of Pennsylvania. So here's a question. Who is killing the great bankers of Europe? This is either the most interesting case of coincidental deaths or one of the most evil plots in modern history. Western bankers are dropping dead all over the place, which, you know, I... I can't really get a whole lot of tears over dead bankers. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm just not feeling it. You know what I mean? I, I'm torn here. I'm like, well, so is this a bad thing or is this maybe a good thing? Can we maybe step it up? Uh, yeah, come on. Because last year, 36 bankers died. And there have been three already this year. But most of them that die are kind of youngish and in good health. And they appear to be an unusual number of suicides and unexplained deaths, too. But there were only 36 last year. You know, I was kind of hoping for more when I read this, but oh well. Again, you know, they're bankers, okay? So here we have another liar. You see, see, this is why it's good to stay away from TV because garbage, you know, with their smiling faces, in their suit and tie. Uh, Oh, and I might mention a pink tie again, because pink's the new manly thing, I suppose. Yeah. Whom 
am I talking about? Dick Morris, all right? You know, he's really, I, I think we see a pattern here. And I think people named Dick really shouldn't be allowed to be on TV or in any power. I mean, look what we have. We have Dick Cheney, we've got Dick Nixon, and we have Dick Morris. I mean, you know, I, I'm seeing a pattern here of, of, you know, something that we really don't need. Get this. Now, now, remember, the Supreme Court just ruled, okay, that money amounts to free speech, okay? And we just had Congress boost just, a, what, two months ago, just boost the uh, amount of money an individual can give to their campaigns ten times. Yeah, from 36000 bucks to $300,000. Yeah, that's right, man. That didn't get a lot of news play. But now here's a big headline. Dick Morris says, money is losing its power in U.S. politics. What? Is that what you're seeing, folks? I mean, when you see, oh, Hillary Clinton's going to raise $3 billion to run for president, and this one's going to run up another billion dollars here, and we've got nothing but billionaires running for office, and Dick Morris actually has the gall to get up and say money is losing its power in politics, and we're supposed to take this guy seriously? Are you kidding me? Ah, you know, really, folks, uh, this ranks up there with the blizzard, okay? Oh, yeah, that didn't happen. How much more? How much more? How how big of a lie until people say, wait a minute, you're lying. <laughs> you're full of crap. You're lying. How big of a lie does it have to be? Money is losing power in U.S. politics? Really? Okay. Oh, yeah, we can all see that, can't we? Not. Well, Fedbook uh, had some outages. Except the only thing is the something going on with the web. And they even say here, Fedbook takes blame for service outages, which hit wider web. Really? Now, Fedbook claims that they had an internal problem with their deal, and that's why, you know, they, they lost service, which is understandable. And, you know, okay, no matter how big and rich you might be, if you're running a computer network of any kind, you can always have failures. But how does that affect the rest of the web? See, they don't explain that in the uh, article here. Now, of course, a hacker group associated with recent high-profile attacks uh, claims responsibility for the out- outages, right? 
them one time. However, anyway, I'll get to the name here. I'm sure. Is so Fedbook's saying, oh no, it wasn't any third party. It wasn't from an outside attack. It was an internal fault. However, this non-attack that wasn't by a third party and it was just internal, somehow, somehow slowed or blocked traffic to other major internet sites. Of course, you know, like Tinder and uh, something called HipChat, whatever that is, but and even AVR chat had a problem for a little while. So what's going on, folks? Now, if Fedbook got hacked, or if Fedbook was part of a bigger hack, why wouldn't they say? I mean, aren't they always trying to hype up the hackers? I mean, like, oh, my gosh, Sony got hacked. Oh, God. Oh, man. Oh, boy. Now we know what kind of scumbags run Sony. Oh, gee. Wasn't that horrible? It's a national defense uh, problem because now we know what kind of dirtbags, racist, bigot, hypocrites run Sony. Oh, my. Well, this is horrible. Who, who cares? I mean, if what did you think? What do you think ran Sony? I mean, really, what did you think ran Sony? What do you think runs Hollyweird? Huh? Please, these are the same people that tell you you need to be riding a bicycle because you're you're creating global warming by driving your car while they fly their jets, their private jets. You know, to their their, their nine million square foot villa. Well, you know, are you kidding me? Really? So we're surprised at Sony, but, you know, that's big news. But now, all of a sudden, something goes on at FedBook that affects the rest of the web. A hacker group claims responsibility for it, but FedBook says, oh, no, 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 it wasn't them. It wasn't them. They didn't do it. Nobody did it. It wasn't a hack. It wasn't a hack at all. It was us. We made a mistake. Something bad happened here. It was only just us. No. Nothing to see here. Move along. See, that's kind of a change of, uh, you know, they blow up. Uh, oh, wait a minute. Could it be that every time they blow up a big hacker event, it's not really a hacker event. It's really them creating a situation that they want to create. And when there's a real hacker event, they want to cover it up because they don't know how to deal with it because they're vulnerable. Mm. Maybe that's it. Nah, that's just conspiracy theory. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a bit. It's Lucy in the sky. I don't got it on the mind. She giggled at the screen because it looks so free. Stop it on the Feathers in her eye. In the back while the diamonds go high in the million 
Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com. Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific.
Break Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's still the 27th of January, 2015. It's still Tuesday evening. It's about 8.43 out here on the Pacific Time Coast. Uh, let's see. Go to theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. That's the website. Everything you need to know about this network is there. And you can even participate from the chat room from there. You'll see the link. Click all the instructions. It's real easy. Anyhow, the room got the first uh, band there, which was The Clash. And it's uh, Drug Squad. And uh, let's see. Uh, second one. I'll have to give the room 50% on it because they did guess Willie Dixon, and he is, uh, he was singing. But, you know, um, well, maybe I'll give him 75% because he was singing. Uh, the guitar player and the, uh, you know, I guess that's not fair, but it is, it is kind of fair because, you know, they don't play together that much. Oh, heck, I'll give the room the, the win. It was Johnny Winter and Willie Dixon. Johnny Winter is kind of a big name. Uh, of course, he's dead now, so he's not as big as he once was, but hey. Anyway, so the room uh, got both. Uh, usually I'm more of a stickler, and, uh, you know. Anyhow, let's get on and move on to some things. Uh, let's see, what to do first. Oh, man, let's, let's stick with some bankers. This is going to end up being being a story. It's not so much a story right now because, you know, the story is, okay, you know, uh, the Greeks voted to basically tell the bankers to shove off. I'm not paying you. Kind of like Iceland did. Because basically what the bankers have done in, Euro, in the Eurozone uh, – have robbed Greece and they rob everybody and they've robbed these people to the point where they elected some people on the promise to the people that you know if you elect us we'll tell the bankers to shove off you ain't getting anything from us and you can kick us out of the eurozone for all we care you're nothing but a bunch of thieving lying bankster criminals anyway it's all true and like I say, it's not so far huge news because they haven't really done anything yet except they had this. However, you know, this um, you know could be very interesting. Let's see, on Sunday, the leader of the radical leftist party, radical leftist, Alexis, Promise to end five years of austerity, humiliation, and suffering imposed by international banksters on the Greek people. He is a dedicated communist who gave his youngest son the middle name of Ernesto after Cuban revolutionary Che Guevara. Greece leaves behind catastrophic austerity. It leaves behind fear and authoritarianism. It leaves behind five years of humiliation and anguish. 
sworn in as prime minister today, orders the Greek coalition party now has an absolute 151-seat majority in parliament. Uh, the prime minister and his party demand a renegotiation of Greece's 179 billion euro bailout and revisitation of the clauses that make the Greek government's implementation of devastating austerity measures mandatory. Basically, what they pulled in Greece is the same thing that the IMF pulled down in South America, in Argentina, and and many other nations down there. Additionally, the party is calling for cancellation of over 50% of the Greek debts owed to EBC and Eurozone states. This victory has uh, empowered the movement, the anti-austerity movement in Britain and meaning Spain and Italy. So this is going to be very interesting, folks, because, you know, the European Union doesn't have much of a choice because if Greece you know, says, look, we're, you know, we need to renegotiate this, and what, what's going to have to happen is you're going to have to forget about 50% of this, or you get nothing. That's really going to be the deal. You're either going to knock off 50% of this debt, or you get nothing. And that sounds fine, right? And everybody says, well, yeah, you know, it's good. And I, I, I agree, because these banksters are nothing but thieving, lying, garbage criminals. They they don't deserve a dime. They deserve to go to prison. Them and their whole family, their whole mansion-living family. Because you go, oh, well, that's not fair, their family. Yeah, their family is benefiting from their crimes. They jet set around, they live in mansions, and they benefit from the criminal activity. They all should go to prison. But Greece is saying, hey, knock off 50% of it. Okay. You know, the only thing is, you see, the only thing is, the only problem here that's going to cause a real a real difficulty is the fact that we live in a, in a bizarro world, okay, where somebody's debt, Okay, Greece owes $176 billion, right? Okay, so they owe 160 billion euros. So you say, well, knock off half of that. All right, that sounds all good. But, see, the problem is we live in, again, bizarro world where that 160 billion euros that is a debt, somebody else is writing on their spreadsheet that that's their asset. And not only that, because we live in bizarre world, they've been allowed, because they say they're allowed, to take that 170 billion euros and times it by 10 and say, well, we have a hundred and, uh, you know, we have 
want 1.7 trillion euros to loan out. So we do so. We loan it all out. And now, because we've loaned it out, now it's on our books as a 1.76 trillion euros in assets from somewhere, which we're going to turn around and do the same thing again. You see, the problem is when you've got a debt, well, that's somebody's asset in bizarro world. This is the system the bankers have designed. And it's all based on the fact that everybody keeps going along with it. What if everybody doesn't go along with it? What if everybody says, hey, you know what? Shove it right off the dock. And keep sailing, buddy. We're not giving you anything anymore. Thanks for playing. Bye-bye. Yeah, what happens then? Well, I'll tell you what happens then. Financial collapse. Well, but what happens when that happens? Well, war. Yeah, the bankers will go create a war somewhere. A big war. Hey, the wars they create are directly related to how big the financial crisis is. I mean, you look at look, look at the Great Depression. Okay? Look at the Great Depression. That was pretty big. That was worldwide. So what did we do? We had a world war. Well, what do you think this is going to be? This is going to be worse than the Great Depression. you got to remember back in the day, uh, Great Depression, they still had gold and silver backing most of the money. Oh, they overextended it all, and that's what got them into big trouble. Because they'd say, well, I've got, uh, let's see, I've got a million dollars in gold. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to loan out a billion dollars in paper. Paper that is supposedly backed by that million dollars in gold. Well, and that all works fine as long as nobody wants their gold and everybody's just willing to shovel around all this paper all the time. That's just great. Until somebody says, you know what, I've decided I want my gold. And then somebody else says, you know what, if you're getting your gold, I'm getting my gold. And uh-oh, now we have a big problem. Well, things are even worse now. And forget these loans and the assets and stuff. Let's talk about derivatives. Do you realize that they say there's something like $4 quadrillion in derivatives? Are you kidding me? Well, here's a, here's a real short, easy story on how to understand what a derivative is and why they're so toxic, okay? So let's say I go and I uh, get a mortgage for 100000 bucks, right? So, uh, you know, uh, I sign the papers, and my signature creates $100,000 in credit. The bank takes that. They loan out 10 times that much, which is a million bucks. So now they got a million bucks of paper floating around out there based on my signature for $100,000. Well, lo and behold, I tell them to shove off. I'm not paying you. Take your dang house. I don't want it anymore. Not another dime for me. Well, that paper's no good anymore, right? Because the loan ain't getting paid. But they don't care. What do they do? Well, they say, well, okay, let's say it's not a mortgage because they'll just foreclose. Let's say it's a credit card thing or some old car or whatever. Well, they'll foreclose on that too. Let's say it's a credit card. So they send you to collections. 
my collection sends you this thing and says, hey, guess what? I'll tell you what. We'll, uh, uh, we'll settle for half the amount uh, of what we say you owe. Now, why would anybody do that? Because they're nice, they're sweet, they love you, they want to help you? No, because it's been discounted. Why? Because it's been chopped up into like five different pieces. So you tell the first collection agency, shove off, verify the debt, verify the value of the debt, or have a nice day. They say, well, this isn't working. So they sell that to another debt collection company. But they keep the paper. Okay, you get what I'm saying? Let's say it's a thousand bucks. Well, they keep that. That's ten thousand dollars of assets to them. Well, they sell it, but they keep the ten thousand dollars of assets. Now the next company goes and does the same thing, and the next company does the same thing, and the next. These are derivatives. This is toxic paper. This is paper based on nothing. Okay, but they keep selling it and keep creating assets. Are you starting to get the picture of how bad this can be? <laughs> I hope so. Anyway, well, I don't have much time, but story from the U.K., which you can bet is coming to America as soon as they can. Here's how the Internet of Things. This is, this is a new term, folks. Get used to hearing this. The Internet of Things. Yeah will solve traffic jams and take the stress out of finding a parking space. Oh, it's going to be wonderful for you, except for the fact that uh, somebody is going to remotely control your car for you. Oh, yeah. And this isn't just some conspiracy theory, man. Okay, this is a Ofcom report, okay? The roads of the future will be able to manage traffic congestion much better than today's network. Oh, let me skip down here. The report, which discussed the future of technology as part of the Internet of Things, a fancy word for devices that talk over, talk to each other over Wi-Fi without requiring human interaction, imagines a time 10 to 30 years down the line where cars can communicate with each other to control traffic. What? Oh, yeah. Working with industry and government, Ofcom wants to create a regulatory environment which fosters investment and innovation in the emerging. Ofcom said in media release, this would result in billions of smart gadgets and devices wirelessly connected to the Internet and each other. One of the ways Internet of Things can benefit the U.K., is intelligent transport systems. Ofcom's vision is a world where cars communicate with each other, making traveling from A to B smoother and safer. It says these systems could be in place in the next 10 to 30 years. Sensors would be fitted in cars and placed on roads. These would monitor congestion and wirelessly send information to a central traffic control system, a hub that compiles data to feed back to vehicles on the road. If there's lots of traffic, for example, the control system would be told over Wi-Fi and react by imposing speed limits. Oh, but this isn't just changing the sign from 50 to 40. No, no. 
the sensors on vehicles would feed back to onboard computers. Cars would also be able to communicate with other cars. This would produce a shockwave effect, Ofcom explains, where a line of cars break and accelerate in unison. Fragmented movement on motorways is a significant cause of congestion, Ofcom says. Today, drivers themselves react to transport systems, warning signs on bridges, real-time information on digital alert boards. But these rely on drivers themselves, Ofcom notes, and the Internet of Things would allow people to sit back and let their vehicles work in sync. Although, the drivers will still need to steer the car. They won't have to work the brakes. You won't have to work the accelerator. You'll just have to steer the car. Won't this be fun? Won't you feel safe? Uh, hey, it, you know, almost like uh, bumper cars. You know, at the, uh, oh, no, wait, you actually get to drive the bumper cars. You're not going to be able to drive your cars anymore. What they have in mind, folks, uh, is this, like, what you want? Man, I mean, I'll tell you, I like technology as much as the next guy, but uh, it can really go way too far. Anywho, I got to go. I'll see you tomorrow, 12 noon, then again at night. Got good stuff coming up, so don't go anywhere. And as always, thanks for listening. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19, 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. stand accused of collaborating with the Nazis. But it wasn't just the Swiss bankers who dealt with Hitler's right. New evidence uncovered by Time Watch shows that many who financed him came from uncomfortably closer to home. The notion that the Swiss uh, were the primary collaborators of the Germans is to me absurd. The emphasis, I think, is misplaced. Were the Swiss admirable in all respects? Probably not, but who was? While war raged, there were 
British and American bankers who continued to do business with the Nazis. In the beginning of the war, people didn't know who was when. I guess they wanted to hedge if, uh, if in fact Germany who won the war, they wanted access to the to the other side. They were terribly cynical people who felt that the war would end as all wars do, and they would go right back to business as usual. Franklin Delano Roosevelt Library at Hyde Park, New York, records of the president's term in office are stored. Amongst the many papers are the diaries and records of Henry Morgenthau, Roosevelt's secretary of the treasury. Morgenthau's diaries reveal an astonishing story of how both national and commercial banks created a system which helped finance the Nazis. To solve this problem, German economist Jalmar Schacht masterminded a new bank, the Bank for International Settlements based in Basel, Switzerland. The BIS, as it was known, would be the central bank to Europe's national banks, such as the Bank of England and Germany's Reichsbank. Together with the Bank of Japan, the great national banks of Europe opened an account at the BIS and settled their debts by gold and credit transfer. For Germany, it will be a mechanism for paying its huge First World War reparations. The BIS was a, uh, a bank set up in 1930 to help transfer reparations. The bank was used to intermediate between the uh, Germans paying reparations and the uh, uh, Allies receiving it. And then it became useful as a club of central bankers in Europe who would get together once a month and, and discuss their common interests. The board of the BIS was made up of member nations who held a share in the bank and was supported by a team of economists. My father, Per Jakobsen, was appointed as economic advisor. This was a revolutionary step. Central banks didn't have economists on them in those days. As a young economics student in Basel, Erin Jakobsen came to know BIS board members as friends of the family, including one of the most important, Montague Norman, governor of the Bank of England. Norman was also a close personal friend of Jalmar Schacht. Both used instinct, as did my father. Their economics was based on the 
instinct they had, and they sort of knew what was around the corner. They had the same job, and you know, if someone has much the same job as you do, you can talk to them in a different way to some outsider. Well, I can't remember ever hearing that there'd been something that had caused more than a slight discussion. They were on the same sort of line through thick and thin. In 1933, Hitler became Chancellor of Germany. He appointed Schacht as head of the Reichsbank and Nazi representative at the BIS. Hitler said of Schacht, it was his consummate skill at swindling other people which made him indispensable at the time. After all, seeing that the whole gang of financiers is a bunch of crooks, what possible point was there in being scrupulously honest with them? Before each meeting of the International Bank of Basel, half the world was anxious to know whether Schacht would attend or not. It was only after the assurance that he would be there that the Jew bankers of the entire world packed their bags and prepared to attend. In spite of his ability, I could never trust Schacht, for I had often seen how his face lit up when he succeeded in swindling someone out of a hundred-mark note. Schacht, of course, was a complicated fellow. He was sometimes being a central banker, sometimes being a Nazi, sometimes being an anti-Nazi. If you read his work, he's all, all over the place. It was Schacht's job to arrange finance for the building of the Third Reich. The BIS channeled investments from the Allied powers into Germany for the expansion of her economy. Although after 1933 there were no new investments, existing investments were renewed annually and paid into Hitler's Reich. By 1939, 294 million gold Swiss francs had been channeled into the German economy. Schacht's economic priority became the rearmament of Germany. Through the BIS, the Allies had been investing in an economy gearing itself for war. In America, amongst those who saw this danger early on, was Secretary of the Treasury Henry Morgenthau. He shared with his president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a suspicion of the banking community. There was a considerable feeling against Wall Street at that time on the part of the new Democratic Party, which formed itself around Roosevelt. It was the first time in some years that the Secretary of the Treasury had not been a banker. Morgenthau was loyal to the president to an nth degree, and they had a remarkably close personal relationship. But um, he uh, didn't understand the uh, intricacies of international finance, uh, foreign exchange. The principal concern of everybody was getting out of the depression. The international fear of a war coming in Europe was, was there in some people, but it was not a predominant feeling uh, in uh, political circles. But Morgenthau was always watching American trade with Germany. Even though he was a, a political person, uh, I believe in many cases his principles came first. Uh, as, as far as Nazi Germany was concerned, uh, uh, nothing uh, 
moved him more deeply than his hatred of uh, Nazi Germany because of what it stood for. Morgenthau felt that uh, we shouldn't cooperate in any way with a country of that kind. But I don't think this ever occurred to people who, who dealt with them uh, in terms of uh, international financial. When in the spring of 1938 the Nazis annexed Austria, Morgenthau's fears that the BIS could be used as a tool of imperialism proved right. One of Germany's first acts was to demand that the gold held in Austria's name at the BIS be transferred to the vaults of Hitler's Reichsbank. The BIS, a servant of its central banks, dutifully transferred 22 tons of gold. They were interested in maximizing the profits of their commercial banks, carrying out financial policies and economic policies of the, their countries. They probably didn't think it was in their province uh, to uh, uh, have, have be, be guided in any way uh, by uh, the nature of the country that they were dealing with. On the 16th of March, 1939, Montague Norman was still espousing the virtues of the BIS. The BIS, whose monthly meetings in Switzerland provide invaluable opportunities of contact, started in the difficult times of 1930, but already has fully shown its worth and will surely prove it in the future. <laughs> Hitler's troops were occupying Czechoslovakia. Again, the Nazis demanded Czechoslovakia's gold, just as they had done with Austria's. But this time, there was a problem. Much of Czechoslovakia's gold had been shipped to a safe haven, the Bank of England. Unfortunately, some of it was in a BIS account at the bank. The Nazis wanted to take over the Czech gold to bolster their foreign income. I was told the governor and his senior colleagues were had up at pistol point and said, if you don't authorize this uh, transshipment of the gold, um, you've had it. The directors of Czechoslovakia's National Bank were ordered to contact the BIS and demand that their BIS gold be transferred to the Reichsbank. Because the gold was in England, the BIS called Britain's Central Bank and informed Montague Norman at the Bank of England of the Czech instruction. Like the BIS, Norman saw no way of stopping the transfer. But by the rules of the BIS, Montague Norman had the power to delay the transfer if he did so by the end of the day, when all banking transactions had to be completed. But Norman took no action, and six million pounds worth of gold was credited to the Reichsbank. When the Bank of England's actions became known, 
they caused uproar in the Houses of Parliament. The Bank of England, after what has happened, may no longer be looked upon as the safest place in the world, and the phrase, safe as the Bank of England, may no longer apply. The Bank for International Settlements is the bank which sanctions the most notorious outrage of this generation, the rape of Czechoslovakia. In Washington, Morgenthau and his team tried to piece together the Czech gold affair. The Treasury had a lot of information and contacts uh, coming in from these five or six top Treasury people in the embassies. The one in London, whose name was Buttermer Butterworth, was, knew everybody in the banking community in London and knew his business, and uh, his reports were important. Well, you've read Butterworth's cable on Czech gold. When you boil it all down, this is what I get out of it. That almost six million pounds of BIS gold was transferred. It's of interest to us because a year ago we took the position that might happen, and we didn't want to deal with the BIS. Well, it's a dirty business, whichever way you look at it. By that summer, Europe was preparing for war. In Basel, the BIS took its own actions to protect itself and appointed a neutral to head its bank. An American banker based in London, Thomas McKittrick. Mr. McKittrick came from Lee Higginson in London. He did tell me how much he enjoyed life in London. Uh, where he had a maid who ironed his pajamas every night, uh, and I think he had the butler warm the uh, times uh, before he read it, but uh, that lies from the upper classes in London, I guess. I think he was uh, regarded as somebody who was a placeholder. You put a man who's an, A, an American, a neutral, uh, B, just trying to uh, keep the place uh, alive. McKittrick was a lawyer, not an economist. And his main job was keeping the bank intact as an institution. He was uh, an expert on flowers. And uh, he and I used to go walking in the mountains, and he taught me about botany. I knew nothing. I became quite a little expert. <laughs> he had a fire sense of humor. But he was, you know, all that you'd expect an uncle to be. With the invasion of Poland, war in Europe broke out.
whilst British and French soldiers were being driven back to Dunkirk, the Bank of England's position did not change on the BIS. Its constitution gave it diplomatic immunity. In June 1940, the citizens of Paris learned of their country's defeat. When Paris fell in 1940, uh, I decided that it was time to uh, get out of Basel. Either the war would be uh, short and the Germans would win, in which case I wouldn't want to be there, or the war would be long, and uh, in which case I wouldn't want to be there. And my wife was uh, pregnant, uh, and so we went to one doctor, an older man, he said, don't travel. So we went to his nephew, a younger uh, obstetrician, he said, travel. So as is often the case, if you get two conflicting opinions, you take the one you want. It's made clear to the staff that if anybody wanted to go back to their country, uh, the maximum effort to get them there would be made. And as far as I know, only one couple left, and she was expecting a baby any day. They were the Kindlebergers, Charles Kindleberger and his wife, who played very good bridge, by the way. McKittrick officially suspended board meetings for the duration of the war. He and the economic advisor of the bank went to live at Rougemont, 100 miles from Basel. A friend of his owned the castle, and McKittrick had permission to use it. I went and counted the number of beds in the servants' wing, and there were 22. And we had a staff of six plus one chauffeur. During the war, enemy nationals were ordered not to fraternize. But at the BIS, old friendships died hard. A technical show was made of keeping the Allies on one side and the Germans on the other side. But of course it never worked out. They just sort of mixed up and walked across the room and said, Now, Hans, how did you get on when you were doing and had your new baby come and all these things? And, you know, you wouldn't have known the war was on. Even after America's entry into the war in December 1941, McKittrick's presidency of the bank went unchallenged by Nazi officials. More disturbingly, reports were coming through to Washington that Montague Norman and his good friend Yalmar Schacht, now Reich's minister without portfolio, were making contact about a separate peace. On July the 25th, 1942, Roosevelt cabled Churchill. I think the Prime Minister should know that from a Madrid source, word is being sent that Montague Norman is establishing contacts with Schacht with regard to peace feelers. Winston Churchill to Eden, 26th of July. Foreign Secretary, I cannot believe such a thing. And either you should see him or I. Eden to Churchill, 29th of July. Prime Minister, I have seen Montague Norman, who states emphatically that he has had no communication of any kind with Schacht for more than a year. Churchill to Eden, 31st of July. Foreign Secretary, we have been at war 
for over two and three-quarter years. Can he extend his assurance to cover the whole period? No assurance to Churchill appears in the file. Nevertheless, Eden cabled Washington, insisting that no contact had taken place between Shaft and Norman during the war. Without documentation, it isn't possible to know definitely whether they were in touch. Meanwhile, in public, McKittrick went through the facade of addressing the annual meetings of the BIS in an empty boardroom to prove that the BIS board was not sitting in time of war. But away from the public gaze, McKittrick maintained contact with the board members and Nazi, Italian, Japanese, and British staff of the BIS continued to meet and do business. Throughout the war, Germany was drawing dividends on its investments in the bank, including those of some of the countries it had conquered. It has been said that foreign exchange control is like sex. It's a very difficult thing to enforce. Uh, and I suppose you could go to another level and say that where an obvious profit exists anywhere, it's very difficult to prevent people from taking advantage of it. There's a drive beneath for sex, for profit. The staff of the BIS also enjoyed travel privileges courtesy of the Axis powers. In 1942, BIS President Thomas McKittrick set off for the United States. Astonishingly, he returned in May 1943 via Rome with the permission of the fascist authorities, despite the fact that Italy was at war with his native America. My father went up to Sweden. Oh, I think that was about 43. He went through Germany, and of course he always thought, uh, Mr. Poole, the Reichsbank, he asked Poole to let him go to England. And Poole said, oh, yes, do go to England. In fact, it would be very good for the BIS if you did. Poole was definitely for keeping relations with the central banks as intact as possible. He certainly sent messages to Norman through my father, saying, I hope you're all right and that you, know, you haven't been bombed or something like that. American intelligence also later indicated that Poole met with McKittrick to discuss attitudes in America towards Germany and that McKittrick even traveled to Germany in 1943. The apparent closeness of the BIS's relationship with the Axis powers was viewed with alarm by a growing team of U.S. Treasury investigators. When I went to work there in the fall of 42, there may have been 14, 20 lawyers and about 100 investigators and maybe 100 auxiliary personnel. And it ended up in a, a, a very large outfit of two or 3,000 people. We were, I guess, very idealistic people. We felt that when young men and women were risking their lives and being killed in the mud in Italy, they 
feared better from the folks at home and from their government. The British Treasury took a different view on the BIS. The Bank of England was continuing to receive interest from the Reichsbank on pre-war investments in Germany through the BIS. Now the Nazis had the looted gold from occupied Europe to help make the payments. In the summer of 1944, Edward Playfair defended Britain's position. Nothing has happened to make us change our views, which are wholly different from those of the United States Treasury. It seems to me important that we should not just sit back and appear to accept their view as the right one. I saw it estimated that Axis Europe was paying around £760,000 a year in interest to the BIS and getting one-third of it back as dividends. We get the rest. Playfair's approach may have made sense from a pragmatic point of view, but the U.S. Treasury took a stronger moral line. They objected to any institution that aided the Germans in any way. Anything that we could do to, to discredit an institution which cooperated with Germany uh, was, was something the Treasury uh, wanted to support. By 1944, the U.S. Treasury had a massive dossier detailing the collaborative activities of the BIS. And when the Norwegian government in exile made a formal protest about the BIS's activities, Morgenthau was ready to make his move. At Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, delegates from 44 allied and associate countries arrived for the opening of the United Nations Monetary and Financial Conference. They will work in the seclusion of this White Mountains resort. The Norwegians uh, had a good deal of information, and it was they who introduced the resolution at the Bretton Woods Conference that the BIS should be shut down uh, as soon as possible. Morgenthau was, was, was impressed with this. He had talked to the Norwegians, and he was uh, uh, impressed and convinced uh, that this was a desirable resolution. But not all the delegates at Bretton Woods were so convinced. Representing the view of the Bank of England and British Treasury, economist Maynard Keynes went to see Morgenthau and in an off-the-record meeting argued that the BIS should not be closed down since the bank would be needed for post-war reconstruction. Keynes wanted to delay it. He wanted to keep this organization which the European bankers and central bankers thought was very valuable. Morgenthau felt that he had convinced Keynes that the BIS ought to be shut down, but Keynes had some reservations as to how to do it and what the resolution should read. Keynes persuaded Morgenthau that the BIS should be closed only after the war had ended. While the debate over the BIS raged at Bretton Woods, the tide of war turned against the Nazis. Allied troops had invaded Northern Europe. Within 11 weeks, they had taken 
Paris. Harsh treatment was meted out to the Parisians who had collaborated with the enemy. But when Morgenthau sent a treasury agent to Paris with the liberating forces, he discovered unpleasant truths about the extent of the collaboration. In December 1944, a report arrived on his desk about the activities of the Paris branch of the Chase, one of the biggest banks in America. The Chase Paris showed itself most anxious to please the German authorities in every possible way. For example, the Chase zealously maintained the account of the German embassy in Paris, as every little thing else. The whole objective of the Chase policy and operation was to maintain the position of the bank at any cost. I recommend that this investigation should be pressed urgently and additional personnel be sent to Paris ASAP. In New York, Treasury agent Marjorie Farber was assigned to investigate the Chase Bank. It had been requested by the Treasury that Chase make available all its correspondence with Paris and I was sent there to look at it. There had been some rumors about the Chase Bank cooperating with the German industry. So perhaps that was the reason why, but anyway, that was what I was supposed to look into, whether there was anything behind it or not. In the course of her investigations, Marjorie Farber discovered a worrying truth. In 1941, decrees were announced in France restricting the freedom of Jews. The Chase Paris took a controversial measure. They jumped the gun. They, they broached the question, well, if that's the case, perhaps we shouldn't let the, the depositors who are Jewish, uh, who deposit in Paris, we shouldn't let them take their money out either. These measures taken against Jews by the Chase Paris occurred while America was at peace with Germany. A later report contextualized the actions of the Chase Paris, saying that the Chase had received a notice of the freezing of Jewish assets and believed the freeze was legally binding. The same report also confirmed that a leading member of staff of the Chase Paris had made the most of his opportunities of being nice to the German officials. U.S. Treasury investigations also cited other banks in France as having cooperated with the Nazis. One of the banks, I don't remember whether it was Westminster or Barclay, they asked the administrator appointed by the German government whether they should keep the Jewish employees. Maybe they should throw them out or get rid of them one way or another. And his answer was, I really don't care. It's go by French regulations. I have none. Now, they didn't have to ask that, obviously. The intention was certainly to make a good impression. In fact, a report by Farber names both Westminster and Barclays employees acting beyond the control of their London offices as having volunteered that they had Jewish staff to the Germans. But there is no mention in the report that they took action against Jewish assets as early as the chase. The banks in France had an interest in developing business with the Nazis. It was really a trade-off. They would try to provide uh, uh, services to the Nazis by reason of providing information. Uh, they would seek favor with them and they would receive deposits. 
seven French banks and Barclays are being sued for any Jewish assets retained. Only Barclays are not filing to dismiss the action and are committed to returning all assets traced. Imagine having your home taken away, all your possessions, and being left out on the street, and then having your bank account or a safe deposit uh, vault being taken from you. It prohibited you from uh, uh, escaping. Boys on the left bank of the Rhine, day after day and night after night, the air forces went out. advanced across the Rhine, they discovered the fate of those who had not been lucky enough to escape. In Hitler's concentration and death camps, it was clear that the Nazis had been stripping even the most intimate assets from their victims. were using the BIS to convert the looted possessions of camp victims into Swiss francs. I don't think we knew what specifically the BIS was doing, but even without full proof, the U.S. Treasury was convinced that the BIS was assisting the Germans in this process, even down to uh, uh, looting the, the Holocaust victims, the the teeth and, and gold watches and whatnot. American intelligence reports showed that the BIS permitted transfers of Nazi gold as late as April 1945. Though no evidence exists that the BIS knew the source of the gold or whether it was concentration camp loot, proof that two BIS directors handled the spoils of the Holocaust was to emerge. In March 1945, Morgan Gore sent an investigator to Basel to question McKittrick. I thought you would be interested in the attached memorandum of my conversation with McKittrick in Switzerland. I was surprised that a voluntary recital intended as a defense of the BIS could be such an indictment of that institution. I asked McKittrick why, in his opinion, the Germans had been willing to allow the BIS to run in the manner which he had described. McKittrick's explanation was as follows. There's a little group in Germany who do not share the Nazi point of view, but who are so important to the Nazis and the management of German finances that they would continue to hold important positions. I asked McKittrick, would he name any of this little group? The only person he named was Poole. Will you state uh, your full name? Emil Jan Rudolf Poole. The following year, BIS Director and Reichsbank Vice President Emil Poole was tried and convicted of crimes against humanity for his involvement in laundering the gold of murdered Jews from the concentration and death camps. Killing firsthand was not his thing. He was tried primarily for two activities. One was handling the deposit of some of the grisly uh, byproducts of the concentration camps, gold teeth, gold washes, gold pens,
gold spectacle cases taken from newly created corpses in the concentration camps. The Rice Bank had vaults full of this stuff. Small mountains, really. The second activity was making funds readily available to the SS4 concentration camp building and pool in order to make sure that the state wasn't investing its money foolishly, toured the concentration camps and made sure that they were doing what they were supposed to do. Also tried and convicted was BIS director and Reichsbank president, Walter Funk. You as the head of the Reichsbank would not know you wouldn't know that. Would you know about the 1,000 wagons of textiles that this SS man said were, had been shipped or warehousing, composed of the clothing of dead Jews who'd been exterminated? In the course of the trials, some other intriguing evidence came to light. Well, I can recall a Dresdner Bank document, which I thought was interesting, which listed... American bankers favorable to the German cause. I think that was practically the heading of the document. It was a who's who of American bankers. And the chase was definitely on that list. Oh, yes, the chase was on the list. That was one of the things that caught my eye. As the war drew to a close, Morgenthau had begun to receive reports on Nazi plans for a resurrection of Germany after her defeat, financed by investments in America and other neutral countries. His suspicions about Germany reinforced, he completed a plan which was to remain his notorious footnote in history. The position of Morgenthau and White were that you shouldn't allow Germany to be reindustrialized. Germany should become a cabbage patch. You could have small shops with, and and uh, and grow um, grow crops, but never become uh, an industrial power again. Morgenthau's plan was rejected, and in April 1945, he lost his greatest protector. After the death of President Roosevelt, Morgenthau resigned from public office and his investigations into the banks and their collaboration with the Nazis were wound down. institution in Europe, well, you want it to stay working, be important, and really help in the post-war period, and that's what the BIS did. According to the uh, testimony, you said we have fallen into the hands of criminals. Its architect, Jalmar Schacht, had been imprisoned by the Nazis for the last months of the war. 
Lowe acquitted at Nuremberg. In 1947, a German court sentenced him to eight years hard labor for war crimes. Telling us who those criminals were. Hitler and seine Genossen. Hitler, you know, is dead. On appeal in 1948, he was acquitted of all charges and set up his own bank. His old friend Montague Norman became Lord Norman. He went down in history as the longest-serving governor of the Bank of England. McKittrick resigned from the BIS at the end of the war and returned to America to become vice president of the Chase Bank. Emil Poole was released after serving just four years and seven months in prison. And in 1954, he applied for a visa to America. He gave his visa reference as the Chase Bank. The American Consulate General wrote, commenting on his war crimes record. It should be noted that the Consulate General has, in the course of its examination, found no other grounds which would prevent Mr. Poole from receiving a non-immigrant visa. Mr. Poole is one of the outstanding bankers in Germany and wishes to proceed to the United States on the invitation of several well-known American bankers to participate in discussions of some importance. Documents that might show whether Poole entered the United States remain classified. They were going to be on the right side no matter what happened. Banking is banking. And that these fellows were interested in, 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 in having a nice, peaceful relationship. German, British, didn't matter to them. A nice, peaceful relationship with everybody making money. Those who fought the bankers did not fare so well. Our American way of life, which has flourished under our republic. And the war against Nazism was over. The war against communism had just begun. Forces of communism. These red fascists distort, conceal, misrepresent, and lie to gain their point. Deceit is their very essence. Harry Dexter White, Morgenthau's second in command, was accused of being a communist. He suffered a fatal heart attack whilst under investigation in 1948. White was only one person on whom self-confessed Agents in Other members of Morgenthau's team were also accused, and his administration became tainted with communism. Were all conspirators. They were all given a, a terrible thrashing by the House on American Committee, and years later by McCarthy. Mr. Morgenthau, I think, felt betrayed. And, of course, I would... Um, I was so saddened to see him in the last years of this very great and prominent life in which he had um, earned so many kudos. I was very sad to see him feel that way, and I would say, oh, they never proved anything about this one, and they never proved anything about that one. Uh, it's just that all of these poor people, some of whom were the most brilliant economists in the world, um, their lives were destroyed. Morgenthau spent the last years of his life building up an archive to preserve the truth for future generations.
deny in his formative years. Sky Digital viewers can press the red button now and find out more. Did drugs, alcohol, and paranoia fuel the presidency of Richard Nixon? His secret life exposed on UK TV history next. The origin of the negative votes was never proved, 
but some engineers thought that it might have been an attempt to tamper with the election. But no one will ever know for sure. The software that counted those votes was owned by Global Election Systems. In 2002, they were bought by the Diebold Corporation. The software is a trade secret. It's against federal and state law to look inside Diebold's voting machines. I was the chief technical advisor to the Secretary of State of the largest state in the United States, and I was not allowed to look at the software running in Diebold or any other vendor's voting systems. To this day, I have not been allowed to look at that software. Software like this is installed in more than 30 states. If someone tampers with it, or it just malfunctions, then the wrong people can win elections. If that happens, hundreds of representatives, judges, and other officials may hold offices they are not elected to. Democrat or Republican, it affects us all. Bev Harris lives in Seattle with her family. A writer, publicist, and grandmother, she knew nothing about computer programming or election systems. But when her county bought a new touchscreen system, she started to ask questions. The answers she got reveal a system in crisis. You know, I had a life before I did this, and I never really envisioned uh, becoming any kind of an activist or advocate. But Sometimes something comes into your life and you know, well, if I don't do it, then maybe no one else will, and then maybe I don't want to bequeath that to my children. I put three words into a news search engine, voting machines, and glitch, and found dozens and dozens of elections that were miscounted by the machines. And about that time, I thought, we really have a problem. What Bev had found was that you couldn't necessarily rely on the election results produced by voting machines. In Louisiana, Susan Berniker, a Republican candidate, filmed the proof when she went to check her results on a touchscreen computerized voting system. This is where I came the day that the uh, warehouses are open to the candidates to inspect. So I came here with an old college buddy. He grabbed his camera, and I asked him to show me how the machine worked. So I just started fooling around with the machine. And it's when I pressed the button next to my name, and then I look down and I see Mr. Gambaluka's name in the display when I press Susan Bernacker. Shall we do it again? Do it again. Okay, here we go again. I'm pressing Bernacker. Gambaluka shows up. So we went down the row. We probably tested 15 machines, and I said, you know what, we don't have to test anymore. And that is when I said, oh, my goodness, what, this is terrible. We can't count our votes. So how do we know this is right? Because the casting of the vote is secret, it's rare to get documentary evidence of machines miscounting. But Susan's experience isn't an isolated problem. Computers count around 80% of America's votes. counties that run elections and buy voting machines. So the make and model varies from place to place, but there are two major types. On a touchscreen machine, the software counts the selections you make on the screen. Optical scan machines read a paper ballot that you have voted on. Seven o'clock, polls are closed. 
The votes themselves are stored on the computer's memory cards. This is the voter cartridge. Cartridge is very important, and it goes right into our bag. There it is. These memory cards are taken to a master computer, sometimes called the central tabulator, which reads the votes, adds them up, and then declares the winner. The problem is that you can't see a computer adding up the votes. So how do you know if it's counted correctly? Supposedly we didn't have any computers at all. And when you went to vote, the voting booth was separated by a curtain, and there was a guy behind the curtain who would write down your votes. So you just dictate them, he writes them down, and when you're done, you leave without being able to look at the ballot. Most people in their right mind would not trust this process. The guy behind the curtain could be incompetent, he could hear your votes wrong and record them improperly, or it could be that he doesn't like your political affiliation and would prefer to see your votes cast for someone else. In an electronic voting machine, you don't have a little guy inside the machine taking dictation. But you have lots of people who are involved in writing the software and lots of people who could have touched the software before it went into that machine. If one of those people puts something malicious in the software and it's distributed to all the machines, then that one person could be responsible for the change of possibly tens of thousands of votes, maybe even hundreds of thousands across the country. That's a very dangerous situation. You know, I began looking into these voting machines and one reason I was so curious is because it's a secret how they work. The companies that make them keep it a secret, none of the computer scientists felt they could even look at the code because the code was supposed to be a secret. The certification labs that examine it keep their process a secret of what they do, and even the election officials who buy the equipment are prohibited by their contracts from ever looking and seeing how it works. What happened next really changed my life. I was looking for technicians who could perhaps answer some questions of mine, and while I was looking for technicians, I stumbled upon an obscure web page. The web page was an old um, predecessor of the Vivo election systems page, and I clicked the link, and that link took me to a site that was not a web page, but it was more like a library or an online filing system, and it contained a, a bunch of different files, just like you see on your computer. And within those were more files, and within those were more files. And the files were amazing. They were things like the software specifications, the software itself, the drawings for the hardware, the user manuals, passwords in some cases. It was the crown jewel for Diebold election systems. Bev didn't know it, but what she just found was a computer program called GEMS. GEMS, made by the Diebold Corporation, counts around 40% of America's votes. So I began downloading these files, and throughout the night, I continued to download them. Throughout the weekend, I continued to download them. There were so many files, it took about 40 hours to download all the files there were. And then I knew I would be working on this project for a long, long time. Up to this point, 
Only the voting machine companies knew how America's elections were actually counted. When Bev downloaded the deep old software, the wall of secrecy began to crumble. The Diebold Corporation claimed that Bev had stolen the software from their FTP internet site. The FTP site was an unfortunate situation, I admit to that. It was a situation where that information was out there, it was captured, which was our fault. We made a mistake, and we readily admit that. Will it happen again? No, it will not. I had never looked at software code in my life. But as a writer, one thing you learn to do is ask a whole lot of questions and learn as much as you can about things. I will say that I didn't want to go through it. I thought, you know, maybe I can cover this story without really learning how it works, but it wasn't to be. I had to actually learn how it works. After finding the files, you know, I sort of collected together some various computer scientists or computer programmers who could help me understand them. And Avi Rubin did an amazing study with three colleagues of his. I got a call that the Diebold code was on the web. Beth Harris had found it on Diebold's own site. And so, you know, did I want to analyze it? And I said, sure. You know, I was very excited about the opportunity to analyze Diebold's code. And I think it's the first chance anyone had ever had on the outside to see what's going on inside of these electronic voting machines. Dr. Rubin found that you could hack into an election without even knowing how the system worked. The problem that Bev has discovered is, is a pretty significant security hole, and it does open the way for people uh, to really seriously manipulate the election in a way that's very difficult to detect. But it wasn't just the Diebold machines that were a concern. Sequoia, ESNS, and Diebold uh, have a lion's share of the market. In fact, ESNS and Diebold alone have about 80% of the electronic voting market. The state of Maryland had spent $55 million on a Diebold election system. They asked computer consultants at Raba Technologies to test it. Raba were able to break into the machines in around 10 seconds. I mean, what did they spend the $55 million on? Accuracy and security and reliability of the equipment. Again, there's a perception there. And well, it's more than a perception. I mean, these scientists break into the machine. I will tell you from what I read in the robber report, and I've read it very carefully, is that the steps that they took and how they, they stated that they had affected the machine in an environment of an actual election would be virtually impossible. Most states require that the voting systems be tested by independent testing authorities, or ITAs. But if the machines had been tested, then why were there so many security flaws? And why could they count votes backwards? It seems I have friends, both in private industry, working for these companies and working in government, that I don't know about and don't know who they are, who know there's something wrong. They're disturbed by what they see, and they want people to know what's going on. What I have obtained here, and these are hard to get your hands on, are two reports. One is for vote here, one is for Diebold Gem System. They're both from cyber which is an independent testing authority, they have these extensive charts where they go over all of the different regulations and the FEC guidelines, and they have check mark after check mark saying that, yes, they, they pass, they pass, they pass, they pass. 
both of them are the same, you get to the last page, and there's a check mark in the other column. Something wasn't tested. And what was not tested is the security of the system. This is the test that tells us whether these things can be tampered with. And here I have penetration analysis not reviewed by software ITA. They're found at blackboxvoting.org, a not-for-profit organization dedicated to consumer protection for elections. She published the results of her investigations on her website. Andy Stevenson, a candidate for Secretary of State in Washington, read her findings and decided to contact her. I was still actually running for office, and my reaction was, is, <laughs> bleep, <laughs> I'm screwed. <laughs> Bev and I couldn't get any answers from our public officials, no matter how much we counted them. It was just impossible. So we decided on our own to, to go get the answers. Bev and Andy joined forces. They wanted to know why voting equipment wasn't being tested for security and why it could count backwards. We set out to meet John Southwark in Huntsville, Alabama. He is the uh, tester of equipment and software for all the major manufacturers of voting equipment. Andy was wired with a small camera. He and Bev wanted to be sure that their conversation with Sean Southworth was properly recorded, word for word. I'm looking for Sean Southworth. That's you. Why are they capable of counting backwards? 
and why can someone break into them in 10 seconds? What people are saying is, why should they trust these machines? I think the main reason is because everything is tested before it's ever deployed for an election. And I, it sounds like I'm a broken record keep going back to that, but that's a very important step. Bev continued her trip across the states. It was clear that the official records weren't going to reveal anything. So Bev started to raid the trash of the voting machine companies and their customers, the counties. She was joined in her dumpster dieting campaign by Kathleen Wynn, an activist from Cleveland, Ohio. Okay. I mean, it's a hit or miss. It's like shopping. You never know what you're going to get until you go. And you open it up and go, okay, nothing. But you never, this looks like a possibility. I think what we'll want to do is get to some place where it looks like we can be fairly undisturbed, you know, behind a supermarket or something. Bev and Kathleen made dozens of raids. Uh, it's legal. When they put documents out in a dumpster in public areas, it's uh, perfectly legal to go get them because they're no longer protecting them. We wouldn't have to do this if our system wasn't secret and hadn't been turned over to private corporations. And unfortunately, what their inner workings are is the vote of you and I, citizens of America. On July 11, 2004, during a raid on Diebold's own trash in McKinney, Texas, Kathleen found some of Diebold's internal accounts. Um, this is some of the stuff that we found actually in McKinney, Texas, in the Diebold trash. Uh, I found an accounts receivable ledger. And in the accounts receivable ledger, I was interested to see the top item was actually money due to Diebold from the 8th District Republican Committee. Now, that's interesting because this is not the elections office that owes Diebold, which would make sense because they've purchased election systems. It, it's a Republican political committee paying Diebold. We have a right to ask why they are collecting receivables from the Republican committee. Bev and Kathleen don't know what this item meant. What is known is that Diebold and some of its executives were major Republican fundraisers. In 2003, Walden Odell, the CEO of Diebold, had written a fundraising letter promising to deliver the votes of Ohio to George W. Bush. your company is impartial, isn't it? Yes. So why did your chief executive say, I am committed to delivering Ohio's vote to George W. Bush in 2004? That quotation that appeared in a letter is something that uh, he regrets. It's a situation where his personal preference has come over into his, his business practice and uh, he has committed to to keeping a much lower profile when it comes to those types of activities because of that statement. You know, people talk about partisan ties to the voting companies, and they're right. That being said, we're also seeing that it's not quite as simple a picture. We have the state of Maryland and the state of Georgia have Democrats very tightly wed to use of the default system, and it's the Republicans who are fighting against it there. And in my own home county, Seattle, King County, Washington, 
it's the Democrats who are pushing these systems and the Republicans who are a little bit skeptical. The new battleground was California, the center of the computer industry. And the Secretary of State, Kevin Shelley, was getting worried about security. Well, in 2003, Kevin Shelley discovered that one of the counties was running uncertified software. And so he ordered an audit of all of the county's voting machines in California. And he discovered that none of them were using certified software. They later even acknowledged that they were aware of the law, but even though they were aware of the law, they chose to ignore it, and they made those changes without seeking prior approval, which is a direct violation of state law. That's when I first came to realize uh, Diebold's uh, uh, lack of uh, integrity uh, as a company. Diebold was called to account by the state of California. At stake was millions of dollars worth of business, and Diebold was forced to put their president, Bob Yurosevich, on the stand. As you know, uh, about a year ago, one version of the source code of the Diebold TSX system escaped your control, and some months later was investigated by uh, a group headed by Avi Rubin, Professor Avi Rubin of Johns Hopkins University, and they wrote a report which found numerous severe vulnerabilities in uh, the code that they saw. I would like your general reaction to those reports before we go a little more deeply. Basically, the code was stolen. In there is passwords. In there is our encryption technology. Okay, now, you know, we're not, I'm not a rocket science, but let me tell you, if somebody steals a key to my house, the first thing I'm going to do is probably change the lock. So that's what we went ahead and did. And I'm sorry, exactly. as you know, the code wasn't stolen. It was left on a public FTP site by, by your own company. The, the code was lifted off of our site, sir, and we still believe it was Downloaded from, on, what, 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 you know that. Okay. Now, of course, the source code, in fact, got out. The key is now published. Uh, what, in fact, what, in effect, you did, or your, your team did, is, is create a big complex building, put locks on every door, use the same key for every lock, and then publish a picture of the, uh, of the key on the wall. Uh, this was far below the minimal standards of security. But for Bev, there was a more basic problem than security. Could Diebold be trusted at all with the counting of the vote? On topic number one, Diebold, we have a company that lies. Yes, I'll say it, lies. Up here this morning, they were saying they'd made all the changes in the software to fix the multiple flaws that would have never been found in the beginning if I hadn't have found their files on the website, by the way. But you see, there's something called release notes. It's a legal document. It is something that must show everything you did and did not change when you put out a new version. I obtained the release notes for GEMS. They did not fix any of the problems. This stuff was never corrected. I don't know what to say. How can you have a company say we want secret software that nobody, even the county registrars who are here testifying on their behalf, is allowed to look at? And when you look at it, you find flaws, and then they say, oh, you don't know what you're talking about, so you turn it over to scientific panels. They find flaws. They say, oh, don't worry about it. We corrected it, and that's a lie. Bob Yurusevich, Diebold's president, did offer this statement defending Diebold election systems also known as DESI. 
Does he understand that the SOS, the Secretary of State and the voting panel, are disappointed in the fact that the RNG Associates inventory report identified unqualified and uncertified software and are looking at DESI to acknowledge that this should not have happened. To be clear, there was no improper intent or motive on DESI's part to give rise to this situation. At the outset, I want to be crystal clear that these allegations in this report about Diebold's deceiving are not true and are factually not supported. A few days later, Kevin Shelley, the Secretary of State of California, announced the consequences for Diebold. I am decertifying the Diebold TFX system, banning its use in four counties where it is installed. Furthermore, I have taken the additional step, and I have the letter here just signed upstairs, of asking the Attorney General to pursue criminal and civil actions against Diebold in this matter, based on finding of fraudulent actions. We will not tolerate deceitful tactics as engaged in by Diebold. Don't try to pull a fast one on the voters of California, because there will be consequences if you do. The state brought a civil action against Diebold but never pursued criminal charges. The lawsuit was eventually settled for a payment by Diebold of $2.6 million. Bev was clearly hitting the industry's profitability, and she got legal threats. It was, it was truly a difficult time, and it's the kind of thing where, you know, it kind of can make and break a marriage. I was very lucky that my husband was absolutely behind this because... You know, here we're looking at each other going, not only do we have no money, but we could get sued by the vendors because they think their stuff needs to be secret, and we could lose everything. And he simply said, you know, my family's been fighting for the right to vote. My husband's African-American. My family's been right, fighting for the right to vote for six generations, and we're not going to stop now. In California, it was only the touchscreens that had been decertified. The central tabulating software, GEMS, was still in use. Now, the central tabulator is sort of the one machine to rule them all. It collects all the votes. And every company, not just Diebold, has this central tabulator. Because, of course, the way you vote is you vote in individual precincts. They're scattered around. And there has to be one machine to pull all these threads together, add them all up, and pronounce the winner. Bev wanted to find out if GEMS was really keeping the votes secure. And so she turned to computer security expert, Dr. Hugh Thompson. I was at this massive hacker-slash-computer security conference, and I get approached by this grandmotherly figure, and, and she tells me that, hey, I've got access to the tabulation software from one of the biggest electronic voting manufacturers on the planet. I'm like, wow, that's very interesting. And then she says, can you take a look at it for me? I'd say the thing that shocked me was how easy vote totals could be changed. So imagine you can go into a box and essentially rewrite history, and there's no record of you rewriting history. And the only record of history itself is the thing that you changed. And that's pretty scary to me. 
Bev and Hugh worked out a way to demonstrate the insecurity of gems. She was invited to appear with her computer hack on national TV with former presidential candidate Governor Howard Dean. All right, Bev, show me how to do this. Well, what we have here is the central tabulator computer. Now, in a voting system, you have all these different voting machines at all the different polling places. All those machines feed into the one machine so it can add up all the votes. So, of course, if you were going to do something you shouldn't to a voting machine, would it be more convenient to do it to the 4,000 machines or to just come in here to one machine and, and deal with all of them at once? The GEMS program is the program that is the central tabulator program. And I'm going to put in a password here. Okay, we're in. Now, this is the official program that the county supervisor sees. As you can see here, Howard Dean has 1,000 votes. And Lex Luthor has 500, so you're beating Lex Luthor, and we're... Two to one. Yes, and Tiger Woods, unfortunately, doesn't have any votes yet. All right. All right, let's close this out. I was just showing you the legitimate way to go in and look at votes, which, All of right. course, you can't tamper with. Go to the Start menu, and I'm going to show you something tricky. And I want you to go to My Computer and just click that. And you're going to see some... Come up, go to Local Disk C, and go to Program Files. Go to Central Tabulator Votes, and then go to the sum of the candidates, which is that table. You see we have 800 votes here for you and 400 for Lex Luthor. Let's just flip those. We'll make that 400, and we'll give 100 votes to Tiger. Let's just see what happened here. We'll go back into GEMS the legitimate way. And as you can see now, Howard Dean only has 500 votes. Lex Luthor has 900, and Tiger Woods has 100 votes. Mm. We just Edited an election, it took us 90 seconds. Diebold and election officials all over the U.S. still insisted that their systems were secure. They said that despite Bev's GEMS hack, there were checks and balances, and that inconsistencies in vote totals would be detected in an actual election. This was just two months before one of the closest presidential elections ever. Those checks and balances were about to be tested. Oh my goodness, you're getting so big. You're great, thank you. Let me go vote first. The world watches our great democracy function. It's that magic moment when the greatest democracy on the face of the planet gets to show the world how we work. be nothing better for our system, for um, for the election to be conclusively over tonight so that, uh, I think it's going to be me, so I can go on and, and uh, lead this country. The politicians said everything was fine, but it wasn't. The machines weren't just insecure. They malfunctioned, leaving thousands without a vote. And now, nobody knows. Our election day in 2004, um, we, like a lot of other organizations, had a voter helpline where people could call in and let us know the problems that they were experiencing. We logged in over 200,000 calls, and many of those people left a voice recording of what they actually experienced. When I made my selection, it jumped from the square that I touched to the square above. They said half the machines were broken. There was one voting booth, one, for 3,000 people. Seven and a half hours in line to vote. And they put two machines in another area with only 300 people and gave us two machines with 3,000 people. 
and they have a lot more in the outlying richer communities, and they don't have lines there. I am hardly around the first of the three rooms that I have to wait. The line is out to the street. Four to five hour wait, you, you can't do. You can't do that. Women with children having to stand outside in the pouring down rain. There were a lot of people who ended up not being able to vote. Uh, because they just couldn't stay in those lines. There were a lot of elderly people there. It is not the people who do the choosing. Everything is so fixed. It's so fixed. There is a calamity going on out there about how elections are conducted in this country, and it results in less voter participation and potentially um, a lack of accuracy in who's either elected or what decisions are made in the polling places. As the precincts closed, the poll workers switched the machines to reporting mode, signed off on the results, and took the memory cards to the central tabulating computers. America waited for the computers to give the official results. John first. Karen Hughes sounding pretty upbeat right now. John, what are you hearing? Look, no Republican has ever won the White House without winning Ohio. That is a cliche. We've repeated a lot, but it also happens to be true. They've always said yes, Wisconsin and Iowa. If you look at the voting returns coming in right now, the latest I brought up a few minutes ago, I believe Senator Kerry has a narrow lead in both states. I didn't turn on the TV for the election results, and I didn't turn on the radio. Instead, I sat here filling out 3,000 Freedom of Information requests to go to every county in the United States to obtain the internal audit logs of those computers, knowing that we wouldn't get them for weeks after the election, and that it would probably be certified, and they would say, get over it, move on. And we would never know whether our election was controlled by 100 million voters or by one guy sitting in his grandmother's basement. Black box voting needed the logs of all activity on the voting machines so that they could conduct an investigation for the people. They wanted the vote count to be independent from partisan politics. In America, it is vital that every vote count and that every vote be counted. But the outcome should be decided by voters, not a protracted legal process. I would not give up this fight if there was a chance that we would prevail. But it is now clear that even when all the provisional ballots are counted, which they will be, there won't be enough outstanding votes for us be able to win Ohio. And therefore, we cannot win this election. People were stunned. John Kerry had promised to challenge the machines and amassed a network of lawyers to protect the votes. And then Kerry stopped any investigation by conceding, less than 12 hours after the polls had closed. Cliff Arnebeck, 
an Ohio election attorney, spoke with John Kerry shortly after. A call from Senator Kerry comes into the hotel room, which a group of us are there meeting with uh, Reverend Jackson. Reverend Jackson puts his phone on the table, hits speaker, and we're now in a conversation. The first part of the conversation is a dialogue between counsel and Kerry. Part of that dialogue includes Kerry sharing the fact that in New Mexico, no matter what the demographics of the, of the jurisdiction are, if, it, if the votes are being counted by optical scan machines, they're coming out for Bush. This is, to anyone who's familiar with the situation, this means Kerry knows there's fraud in that election. And the optical scan machines are the clue? Yeah, he's, what he's saying is that it's the, the, the optical scan machines are being rigged to produce a result for Bush, contrary to what the voters, the votes the voters are casting. So this is not our conspiracy theory. This is not something we have to prove to Kerry. Kerry is sharing this as a matter of fact. Because Kerry conceded the incredible resources that he had organized for potential post-election litigation was not in the picture. Kerry conceded even though the results were from software he knew could be rigged, and the independent exit polls had predicted his victory. Now it was clear that the citizens would have to investigate the election themselves. <laughs> Another 4, uh, 4 a.m. Bev and black box voting decided to start in Volusia County, Florida, where Al Gore had received his negative votes in 2000. Bev wanted to start by checking the printed results from each voting machine. Um, our election, I thought, went extremely well, and I'm very tickled about it because it was my final election to perform. I'll be retiring on December 31st. So you can imagine how I was praying to come out with a smooth election at the end. <laughs> I have one question. Um, these are not copies of the signed ones. These are new ones. And one of the things we had asked for was the voting machine results tapes, copy of them, signed by the poll worker for election day, which was November 2nd. But the date was November 15th, and they were printed out minty fresh just for us, obviously. So what I was given was not at all what I asked for. Let me take this. Great. The original tapes off of the machines, are they still out the warehouse, or did you bring those in? At the warehouse? They're out the warehouse. We went to the Volusia County warehouse because we had learned that that's where the real poll tapes or results tapes for the voting machines were going to be. And we wanted to go there by surprise because we wanted to see what they were doing with them. To see what the machines had done with the votes, Bev needed to check the printed poll tapes from all the optical scan machines. If you add up all the poll tapes and there is a mismatch with the official results, then you know there's either been a mistake or vote tampering. Go on and close your format. Go ahead. Let's go ahead and get the leads over here. 
Meanwhile, around the back of the county offices, two sharp-eyed local residents were investigating. Hi, I'm, I'm Susan Pinchon, and I'm the executive director of the Florida Fair Elections Coalition, and I am going through the trash at the Supervisor of Elections office in Deland, Florida. Oh, look at this. All right. These are polling tapes, and actually, one of these tapes are the ones that we were missing from this morning. I'm in Volusia County, Florida, home of the home of the negative vote total. A third of the original records were either missing or incomplete. And so once again, the votes remained secret. If Volusia County was a bank and threw away the documents that added up money instead of votes, then the feds would have investigated immediately. But the feds stayed away and while black box voting was able to show the secrecy itself, no one knew what the results really were. Our democracy could go out of business. We won't have a republic left. It won't be recognizable if we don't get rid of the secrecy. It was not set up to be a secret system. It became a secret system. And if we don't open this thing up again and quickly, we will never again see what's going on. We've given it up. We've lost it. We're going to have to go back to in there and take this back by whatever means necessary. In Ohio, citizens were angry, claiming that the election had been fraudulently counted and that voters had been turned away illegally. They needed a recount. In the end, it was the Green Party's presidential candidate, David Cobb, who decided enough was enough. I launched a recount in order to investigate the allegations of voter suppression and fraud that were pouring in. This was a chance for black box voting to really find out how the votes are counted. And Kathleen went back to her hometown, Cleveland, in Cuyahoga County, Ohio. December, January, when the recount was going on, the snow uh, and blizzards and traffic, we, we, we would laugh and say, well, you know, this is what we have to do to get our democracy back. We'll do it, uh, although we would rather be home in front of the fireplace. Cleveland, in Cuyahoga County, is the largest jurisdiction in Ohio, with around one million voters, large enough to alter the outcome of the presidential election a swing county in a swing state. What are you getting up so early for today, and what are you going to go do today? Count the votes and make sure that count is right. The reason that I bought a camera is irrefutable proof. I didn't ever want to be misunderstood or misquoted, so that way there'd be no question. Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? 
just introduce a couple of individuals. Uh, one of those individuals is Jackie Maiden, who is our elections coordinator. Uh, and our manager, who is Kathy Dreamer here also, who will be facilitating. Cuyahoga was still using punch card ballots, counted by a computer running secret software. The only way of checking this computer's results is to hand count the ballots. Under Ohio law, however, you must first hand count a random 2% sample. You are only required to recount all the votes if that sample doesn't match the computer results. Tell me how you feel about this today. Well, it's, it's exciting, like you said, it's part of history. You know, it's, um, we do recounts all the time. It's not um, that big of an issue for us, for the public Recounts are not just for the public to see. The public is meant to check that the election results are correct. After all, it's their vote. Almost immediately, the observers suspected that someone had tampered with the ballots. Seems like all the bush and the jury seem to be quite swamped together. So there might have been some sort Somehow... Those uh, cards were manipulated so that they were grouped. And I don't know anything about how that happened. Nobody's been able to answer that question for me. We've got about four hours worth of work on the county ballot. And that's it? And it will continue to run for the tabulation machine. And they're starting to set poll books. Everything's going very well. And I did manage to capture all the election officials saying everything's running smoothly, everything's going perfectly. So whatever they say that, you know, <laughs> They've done something to, to make certain of that. Later, the county prosecutor charged that staff had counted a large number of precincts in secret before the public recount. Then they kept back the ballots that didn't add up, giving the citizens a 3% sample that wasn't random and wasn't legal. What's the process of uh, 3% of people to the Jackie Maiden later stated that she had been following the normal procedure in pre-sorting the ballots. However, she also said that to her knowledge, there was no discarding of any precincts which did not add up, and she did not believe this had occurred. But the other 97% of the ballots were never recounted, and no one knows if the software had added those votes correctly. The recount is nothing but a charade. It's a complete and utter waste of time. It's a, it's a bit of theater, uh, if you will, uh, and it was done, in my opinion, to ensure that there was never an actual recount conducted, but more importantly, to ensure that there was never an investigation into the underlying allegations of voter suppression and election fraud that took place. Mr. President, the certificate of the electoral vote of the well-known and great state of Ohio 
seem to be regular, inform, and authentic. It appears therefrom that George W. Bush of the state of Texas received 20 votes for President Dick Cheney of the state of Wyoming received 20 votes for Vice President. For what purpose does the member from Ohio rise? I said, I object to the Ohio vote. And before they could ask me, I said, and I do have a senator. There had not been a challenge to the presidential vote in Congress for over a century. And it was recognition of the failures and disenfranchisement in Ohio. Has the senator signed the objection? The senator has signed the objection. An objection presented in writing and signed by both a representative and a senator complies with the law. I raise this objection because I am convinced that we as a body must conduct a formal and legitimate debate about election irregularities. I raise this objection to debate the process and protect the integrity of the true will of the people. When I made a decision in conjunction with Senator Barbara Boxer to object to the Ohio vote, you would have thought that I shot somebody in the head and that I wanted something, uh, something terrible. The problem we confront with this debate is that it serves to plant the insidious seeds of doubt in the electoral process. They accuse the president, who we are told is apparently a closet computer nerd, of personally overseeing the development of vote-stealing software. We also were all elected under the same rules and regulations that we're discussing today. I don't know that we helped the process. I don't know that we helped the process by casting doubt on what all of those people that work at elections all over America do. Those favoring yeas and nays will rise. Sufficient number has arisen. The yeas and nays are ordered. Members will record their votes by electronic vote. Although the Ohio election was certified by Congress, politicians have been forced to look at a system that served themselves and not the people. Tragically, around the same time, Andy Stevenson was diagnosed with cancer. He died in July. Maybe this is the legacy I'll leave. Maybe I'll leave this behind for people to remember me so that when I, when I do go, when my time comes to, to meet my maker, I'll have something, a little piece that I left behind that, that people can point and say, well, yeah, he was here. Tallahassee, Florida, the supervisor of elections, Ion Sancho, wanted to be absolutely sure that when his computers declared a winner, it was because that was the will of the people. The vendors have entirely too much power in the elections arena today. Election officials are really overly dependent upon the vendors. Vendors control what kind of technology may be offered in a state. We're essentially hostage to the financial desires of private interests to conduct the most public of our procedures, public elections. Ion asked Black Box Voting to look at his deep old optical scan system, and they invited computer security expert Hari Hursty from Finland. This is a first. We're going to be looking at 
the machine, the real machine, that's a real system that's actually been used in real elections. This is exciting. Welcome to Tallahassee. Hi. Harry Harrison, nice to meet you. Hi, I'm Stan Show, Harry. Sure. This is where we count the votes on election night. Thomas James. Thomas? How are you doing? Very fine. you? One of the things that the vendor told us was that people would not be able to access this, that, that every time you entered into the system, that the system would record that. Dr. Hugh Thompson and Harry Hursty believed that they could change vote totals without being caught. Hugh tried hacking GEMS, the computer's vote counting program. He used an election held at a local high school. Nadia Smith had come in second with 322 votes. They decided to make her the winner. So I go into this election file, and if I do, I'm asked for a password, and I have no idea what the password is. But Hugh had written a program that automatically looked for Nadia's vote total and then changed it to 5,000. When they called up the results page, Nadia had won but the computer showed no evidence of fraud. It does give me great concern over the failure of the system to realize that you can slide by and come around through another direction and bypass the password. But you could have been caught if the final totals on gems were checked against the original printed out results. Harry realized that every vote is stored on a memory card before the totals are printed. So if you can hack the memory cards, you can control an election. The real liberty has to be very, very close to the source of the information. Um, in that environment, the only possibility was the memory card. Harry wanted to find out what exactly was inside the default ballot box. Yeah. And so he bought a memory card reader off the Internet. And within a couple of days, he found that the cards didn't just contain votes. There was a program or executable code. Well, if someone would have told me that in this system there is a living thing, an executable, modifiable program stored in the same place as the very data, which is the most secure in the system, I would say you have to be a misunderstanding something crazy or lying. Harry wrote a report for black box voting, warning that this program lurking in the memory card could be used to change the result of an election. What happened after that was people basically dismissed and stonewalled the report. Diebold sent letters to officials across America denying that there was any executable code on the memory cards. Back in Cuyahoga County, Ohio, home of the infamous recount, the chair of the Board of Elections, Bob Bennett, was on the brink of investing $20 million in Diebold systems. The stand loan system votes are encrypted, so if anyone tries to tamper with those uh, election results, Shut down the system. So you've got built-in protection within the system. I'm sorry, you've been very kind. So far, you're doing very well. Thank you. 
Bob Bennett was also the chair of the Republican Party in Ohio, the party that Diebold had raised money for. Citizens were there to record, observe, and hopefully make a difference. Among them, Kathleen and her college buddy, Victoria Lovegren. Basically, I would like to know why, what were your decisions right now? For even your own criterion, Diebold does not win. It's a bad decision, and it's going to, you know, you're going to, it's going to come back to bite you because you're already in trouble. People do not trust Cuyahoga County. They do not trust the recount here. You're in trouble. it was time to make something drastic happen. Three months later, Diebold was back in town to complete the sale. Knowing that Diebold was going to be showing up at a public meeting, the next strategy was to go there and get their head engineer on videotape saying you can't change the votes on the memory card. So my question for Diebold would be, again, either do you not know what was done in these security tests, or do you just tell something that's not true? I think that deserves a response from people with the question. Okay. And did they know or not? It is my understanding that because there is no executable TV program on memory cards, that the actual vote on the memory card cannot be altered. Could you remind us, are you an engineer yourself? No, I'm not an engineer, but I can work with our engineering crew. In fact, Pat, I'll step up here for one second. Hi, I'm Pat Green, I'm Director of uh, Research and Development for Google. Mr. Harris, could you um, phrase your question again? Can vote be changed using only a memory card? No, I do not believe the vote could be changed because only the card. That particular situation is detected by the software. Uh, the report uh, that was written that I have read guesses that something like that might be possible, but says that they did not actually accomplish that or test that. These are very strong statements. These are statements that we took to be a challenge. These are statements that we wanted to find out if they were true or not. And so Bev went back to Tallahassee to see if votes could be changed. For Ion, there was another reason to test the memory cards. As one of the most trusted Florida election officials, he had been appointed to oversee the 2000 presidential recount. The recount might have discovered why Volusia County's computers counted backwards to minus 16,022 votes. But when the Supreme Court stopped that recount, Ion was left with unanswered questions. One of the reasons that interests me about the Volusia County situation and what happened there is that we in Leon County used the identical voting system. The Diebold Activote 2000 and in the 17 years that I've been an election administrator, um, 
my experience is that that kind of subtraction cannot occur accidentally. Someone consciously tried to affect that computer system and consciously tried to perpetuate a fraud to steal votes. During his research, Hari had discovered that Diebold's memory cards effectively allowed negative votes. Not done. No debt. What are we going to do here is modify one card and then bring it to the election supervisor's advisor Ayer Sanchez's office, plug it as the real card in any election to the real election system, and run ballots through. And that's the same system which had been used in a number of previous elections. And we'll see that what is the power in the ballot box. This should be just an empty box containing the votes, but it has more capabilities than that. So it's a very simple process. You just add the card in. You run the rewrite program. Tell where to find the scanner and tell exactly what file you want to be put in, and off it goes. Hari's hack is a variation on stuffing the ballot box before anyone has voted. But this is always suspicious because you end up with more votes than voters. So Hari used five negative votes for one candidate and then gave the other one five positive votes. So as people cast their ballots, the total number of votes always equals the total number of voters. But was Hari right? Black box voting went back to Tallahassee for the ultimate test. Bev asked Susan Pynchon from Volusia County to observe. She too had found evidence of problems with the memory cards while sifting the trash from the Volusia County Board of Elections. This is from Mark Early of Diebold, and it says, how did the number of memory card failures on election day increase from the 17 reported on November 3rd to 25? I don't know if we'll ever know why these memory cards failed or if, see, see one of the big questions in my mind is, did they actually fail? Or could they have been used for other purposes? Hi, hi, hi. how are you doing, hi. Susan? Susan Berniker from Louisiana hi. and Dr. Hugh Thompson also came to watch Harry's hack. Always good to Always see you. Always good to see you, Kathleen. <laughs> Come on in. Well, let me tell you what we're going to do today. We have constructed a mini-election, uh, but Harry Kersey, as you have served as a technical advisor of how to do this, we're going to ask you to remain outside. After you, let me introduce you to my election staff. To ensure that We've not prepared some sort of a, a device that has been pre-rigged. Pick the number, and then we'll grab that unit, and that will be the device that we will count the ballots on. Okay. And the winner is unit 15191. What we have here is a programmed optical scan ballot. Uh, there is only one question on this ballot. Can the votes on the Diebold system be hacked using the memory card? 
I have only such a memory card, not the other parts of the default election system, which is going to be used today. Only the memory card. Uh, I, I can certainly speak for myself and Harry, and that we're going to vote yes. All right, then let's have the rest of us vote no. Two individuals, Hugh and Harry, will be voting yes. The rest of us will be voting no. And then we'll scrutinize the ballots afterwards to ensure that that is indeed the mark. I will say that I'm wrong and Diebold is right, and I'm going to say um, no, they cannot be hacked. It's impossible. So I vote no. I'm going to film myself voting. I'm going to mark this ballot now. Dr. Thompson, I am going to bar this ballot. Yes, seeing some pretty concerning things. Well, it's down to your year of the last voter, Harry. All right. I think it's good to be. So I vote for yes. You will be the second yes. All right. I am here at the memory card. I have touched. Okay. Now, this is the only piece of Diebold equipment that you've used. That's correct. Well, thank you. Let me take your ballot in. <laughs> this card will go into this slot. The next activity that the election worker does on the morning of the election is turn the machine on, making it live to receive votes. When you do that, this machine will produce what is called a zero total tape. The machine is going through a self-test analysis, and then it will spontaneously turn on. This is Harry's card that is telling us that there are zero votes stored in the memory. Okay, let me get the ballots. Let's insert a yes ballot. We're going to put in another no. Seven. The last no ballot. Eight. Placing the ender card in this device and telling it to turn off its counting function and do its reporting function will now cause the voting machine to turn out a tape reading the number of votes that it had just read. Oh my. <laughs> oh, oh no. What is it? What is it? Seven yes, one no. Oh my god. Oh my gosh. Let me see. Here's the tape. Seven people said it could be X. So we put through six and two. Six and no. no. And two, yes. yes. Oh my gosh. Do you know what this means? How do we know that Harry didn't just change the report and the votes themselves on the memory card are still correct? If that was the case, when they go into GEMS, the results would be different. Isn't that right? The only way to know that is to read them into GEMS and to check the vote total. Should we do that? I think we should because I want to confirm for my own analysis is this just a superficial 
Right. That's a good, that's yeah, a good that question. Was, did we just change the words on this paper? And we will upload this memory card. If I had not seen what was behind this, um, I have no reason not to. I would have certified this election as a true and accurate result of a vote. how to describe what what I saw here um, I think we as election officials need to be a little bit more Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.